Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 140. So glad you could join me on this special time. We actually have 13 people already here on YouTube and um, a couple dozen or so people on Facebook right away, which is good. I was a little worried about this special time, but because Easter was yesterday, we couldn't do a show on Easter Sunday morning. Um, so we switched it to Monday, and I'm so glad you could find me. Now, today's guest is Kate Gale. She'll be joining us in about a half an hour. Um, we have a couple guests lined up for the first half hour, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button, share, subscribe, click the bell for notifications, leave a review. Whatever you can do to uh, help spread poetry on the internet is much appreciated. Now, to start with, we have uh, Sunday's poet with us which would normally be happening on Sunday, but now with this special uh, special episode, it's a day after the fact. But this is Richard Westheimer, of course, as most people, most viewers know. And his poem this week was The Miracle of Naming. And uh, here he is, Richard Westheimer. Hey, Dick, how you doing? Hey, Tim. I'm, I'm doing great. Really, really, really delighted to be here. Yeah, it's good to say, I mean, like, like I mentioned on an email, like you send one or often two really good poems every week. So it's sort of a... You know, it's tough knowing which poem is the one to pick. Um, and uh, But this is a great one, and it, it felt really honest and and sort of complete and, and from the heart, which is what I loved about it. And uh, people have loved it, too, online. So do you want to explain what the topic is? A very sad story that, it, that you were writing about. Yeah, well, uh, for, first I'll say I was very uncertain about this poem, as I wrote to you about. But when I reread it, I through other people's eyes, I really grew to appreciate it differently than when I when I first sent it off to you. Um, so the the root of the story was brought to me by my wife, uh, Debbie, who's sort of my writing partner. And um, um, she said, do you know about this uh, trans woman who was murdered in Vermont, which is where my daughter lives and has been very active and as a community organizer in the LGBTQ community? And I didn't. I looked it up, and I was immediately um, struck by her name, Fern Feather, which in a former life might have struck me as being sort of like overly, you know, um, cute. But I just loved it, and I thought about this woman and feathers. And, and anyway, her 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 story is tragic uh, in that um, you know she was murdered clearly for being a her. Uh, in in what appeared to be perhaps a trans body. And um, one of the things I did was I looked up to see, is it true that murders of trans people is are, are proportionally greater than not? And it's incredibly, like four times as much. Um, so... Um, so I, I, I saw her name Fern, Feather and thought of Icarus and, and the poems just started unfolding from there. Yeah. Well, do you want to go ahead and read it? This is um, The Miracle of Naming. I, I will. Uh, one other thing I'd like to, I, I did note in my um, um, uh, 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 poet statement about supporting an organization that supports uh, um, LGBTQ folks in um, Vermont. And the one that I'm going to use my, send my poet's response stipend check to is called uh, Out in the Open. Yeah. Who, and yeah, the one that is we support, are out in the open .org. Right. And they directly support rural LBTTQ mm -hmm. folks, which is an underserved group. So I'll go ahead and read the read 
read the poem. Okay. Um, it's called The Miracle of Naming. When I read of the murdered woman, Fern Feather, I thought of the myth of Icarus, because Fern had wings too, or at least feathers, although hers were ones she'd grown herself, were not sown by some other. She'd discovered a way through the labyrinth of her man's body, found Ariadne's string of coming out, and followed it, blinked back tears in the bright outside, was greeted as a kind of light, as a hot woman who warmed the world, until some guy she knew put a knife in her for being a her. When I asked my daughter Fern's preferred pronouns, many, all, she said, multitudes, I thought a miracle of naming. I go for a walk outside where impossible dandelions push through the pavement of our lane. They somehow have survived the crush of cars and me walking from here to the mailbox and back. Their butter yellow is splashed with muddy pothole water. Their leaves bruised, but still feeding the roots they've put down. No one welcomes these blossoms, and some neighbors would have me poison the ones that thrive here and in the yard. I've been slow to appreciate them myself, some days digging them out with a spiked tool, others sitting beside them, listening to them whisper their rugged stories, how they've been around since before my kind created time. I go back inside, call my daughter again, ask about her coming out, ask about Fern, talk about the world of spiked tools and poison and naming. She tells me of all the blossoms in her crushed world and all the impossible buds that will push through and bloom again and the one who won't. Her partner joins the call, shows me the brisket they are preparing for Seder, tells me these tough cuts of meat take time. I savor that they prepare such a fine meal together. And even though I am vegetarian, I ask for the recipe. Yeah, there's a beautiful poem and great metaphors throughout that, too. The Miracle of Naming, Richard Westheimer. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that and uh, for joining us today. And, and maybe we'll see you later on the open lines, too. Yeah, I'll be around. Okay, Okay, thanks. cool. Thanks, Dick. Bye. Bye. Yeah, so it was Richard Westheimer with uh, The Miracle of Naming. And uh, we, as we mentioned, you can go, if you want to find a, a way to help, you can go to... Um, the website, which is um, at the bottom of the link, we are out in the open.org is the website that he suggests going to to support um, um, rural LGBTQ people in uh, Vermont. So do check that out. And um, of course, the story of Fern and, and what happened to her. Um, and then we're going to switch to another, we're going to try a new segment on the show, which I've been meaning to do for a while. But um, George Bilgeer was a guest um, on rattle number 38 way back two years ago. And, um, and he has a new book out now, um, <clears throat> Central Air. And so we thought we'd bring him on for a brief segment to just talk about his new book and share a little bit from that. And uh, here he is, George Bilgeer. Hey, George, how you doing? Here I am. Hey, Tim. 
So good to see you. Wait, you mean the last time I was? I think I was on the show like a year ago, right? Or... <laughs> no, it was. It was the what year was... that it felt like two. It was actually two years to the day almost. It was April twenty first, twenty twenty. So the. The lockdown had just started. And if I remember right, you were talking about how um, nice the, the familial bonding was um, during, you know, for that month where you, know, you got to spend time together yeah. in a way that we didn't before. Um, yeah. So little did we know that it would last two years and <laughs> we'd still be kind of <laughs> creeping our way out of it. Um, how, has, how has the two years been since? What was then uh, familial bonding is now, <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> um, no, it's it's uh, it's been a great two years since uh, last we talked. Although I must tell you, I am coming to you from Cleveland, Ohio, and it is <clears throat> it is snowing rather heavily right oh, now. Oh wow, really? That it's mid-April. <clears throat> this is so cr- April is indeed the cruelest month. Anyway, happy uh, happy National Poetry Month, Tim. Yes, and uh, yeah, I've got check this out. Yeah, it's a beautiful cool, book. I have a copy right here. Coolest cover. This the cover is done by a, a, a originally a Cleveland artist. What you're seeing is a kind of fisheye view of Cleveland buildings with the middle with the title of the poem in the very middle central air. It's a Cleveland artist named Amy Casey whose work is just fantastic. So I'm so uh, privileged and honored to have have her work on the cover. Yeah, the book came out a few weeks ago. And for the first time in two years, I've been out on the road uh, promoting the book. I just got back from Corpus Christi, Texas, and I'm going to be going to New York, and I'm going to be going to um, Pittsburgh and various other spots. So it's all of us poets just sat around twiddling our thumbs for two years, and now we're, we're out again. And it's, it's really been so exciting and so much fun to be, I don't know, on <clears throat> on the poetry road again. Yeah. How, how and, have the audiences been? Have people been sort of extra excited to get out or does it feel sort of back to normal like the crazy two years never happened? No, they're extra excited. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got a little bit of a cold. They're really extra excited to be out. I mean, the idea, look, Zoom <clears throat> is great and it's it was a wonderful thing that technology could kind of get us through that period. But people, whether they, whoever the poet is, they're just happy to be at the bookshop, at the college, at whatever reading venue it is, talking to each other and having coffee and, and going out for a, a beer after the reading. Um, it's really an exciting time. So long may it last. I mean, may, may this be permanent. I, I certainly hope so. For sure. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it's always good to have uh, a new book. So do you want to read a poem from it? I think we'll read two poems, maybe one, then we'll talk about the book a little, and then we'll read another poem. That's great. Thanks, Tim. Um, I'm going to read a book, uh, a poem from the book called Anna Karenina. Um, I, was, I was raised by a single mom. My, my dad died when I was about 10, and my mother was uh, faced with raising uh, three kids. She was a nurse. And um, she worked these long shifts, but she also had a passion for reading great literature. She, she loved to read these great old novels. And a couple of years ago, I, I remember her reading Anna Karenina. So a couple of years ago, I had never read the novel. So I, I read Anna Karenina and I thought, this is a weird thing because I'm taking a journey 
my mom took so many years ago through this fantastic novel. And I wrote a poem. It's for my mom, Ruth Bilger, Anna Karenina. My mother was long dead before I was old enough to ask her who she was. But I'm reading Anna Karenina, which I recall her burning through late nights after a double shift, after the insertion of suppositories and the emptying of bedpans, after she fried us up some pork chops and opened a can of applesauce and a can of hominy and a can of fruit cocktail. She would sit down with her cigarettes and red wine and read these big novels that took her away from thinking all day about money and into whatever Emma Bovary or Eleanor Dashwood was dealing with. She disappeared into French winters. She walked down London streets or sat quietly with Anna in her parlor. I look around in the novel for her cigarettes tonight, her glass of wine, anything she might have left behind. That was Anna Karenina from, uh, from Central Air, which you can see on the screen right here, George's new book of poems from Pitt Press. Um, tell me about the title, uh, George. What, you know, it was one of those books um, where um, the, the poems feel like little, little anecdotes from different areas. The interesting thing is the pandemic kind of feels like it runs through in the background of it. It feels like a sort of reminisce about the regular world or something as we're all sort of yeah. as time slows down a little bit that's kind of kind of felt for me but um but, but so what was it why did you pick this uh the, the, there's a poem in there called central air but why did you pick the uh, this is the title of the book well because the that poem central air deals with some neighbors down the street you know I, I, cleveland is hot and steamy and sultry in the summer and a lot of people have central air you know those great big machines you install next to your house that keeps your house going kind of like a refrigerator all summer. And to me, um, that that kind of spoke of the pandemic. Central Using central air and staying in the house all summer, isolated from the rest of the world, was so characteristic of who we were for a year or even two, sort of uh, um, locked by technology into our safe uh, little bubbles. And I also like the title just because I like the poem, but I like the title for a book title because it it suggests um, when you when you speak a poem, when you read a poem, it exists in the air, right? The vibrations of the air. And I wanted to say, you know, rather with a kind of ironic grandiosity, hey, these poems are some central air. This is crucial at this time to hear these poems. Uh, and it, it just looked great on the cover. So uh, that's, that's why I, I picked, you know, here's some, some central air for you, some central vibrations. And one of the poems that I, uh, I like most in the collection, you know, now that I'm a dad, uh, one of the world's oldest, relatively new dads. Um, there, there are a number of poems in the collection about my kids. And uh, one of the poems that, that I like most, I, I want to read for you now. And there is, um, it takes place 
at our local Cleveland public pool. And there's a word in the poem that maybe some listeners should know. The, it, the word is Phidian, P-H-I-D-I-A-N. It refers to a Greek sculptor named Phidias, who was renowned for the, the beauty and delicacy of his, sculpt, his, his sculptures of the human head. The poem is called The Scar, and any, any parent here can connect with this poem. Oh, what page is it on? Oh, here it is, 16. Oh, sorry. It's on page 16. Okay. My son slipped on the ladder to the pool and smacked his head, blood pooling on his small shoulders, the doctor stitching him whole. Three years on, after a haircut, the scar still rises. A quarter moon, a woman will ask about as they lie there one night, her fingers in his hair, her voice in his ear, the secret delight of him, a bit like burnt toast in her nostrils as she takes his strangeness into her. What she won't know is how the frail Phidian skull I held that day in my hands resounded on the hot concrete. It echoed all summer, less like an egg cracking in a bowl or a world breaking than the wild beating of love against my heart. Dear girl who will one day win him, that part of the boy is mine. And two great poems. Thanks for sharing these. And, and this wonderful book, I'm just, you know, I always get copies of books um, in the mail. I'm privileged in that way. And uh, it was really wonderful to see this book and read through it. Um, the interesting thing, too, is that I think we published four or five poems in here in Rattle, but they were yeah. all from submissions where you'd sent four or five. So a lot of the poems, you know, and they're all good. I love all your work. So a lot of the poems I'd read one time as a submission and picking other poems and then got to reread them again. And um, just a, it's a wonderful book. Um, I noticed on the back, you don't mention um, the radio show anymore. Do you still do the radio show? I still do the radio show. I, I, I just neglected to mention it, but I still have a radio show uh, uh, called Wordplay that I do with my wonderful partner, John Donahue. And you can, uh, if, he, if uh, listeners to this show, viewers to this show were to Google WJCU.org, you could find out when to listen to wordplay, which has uh, is, is been a, a really fun project for me for the past dozen years or so. So please tune in. John and I read our favorite poems by poets you know, around the country, mm -hmm. um, usually poems that we call radio ready, poems that work on the radio. So wjcu.org wordplay. So Thanks for giving me a chance to plug the yeah, show. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely, I've loved listening to it. And then you kind of forget to listen to things and it's a good to have a reminder. Um, but yeah. I can't help but ask now, what is, um, what, what makes a poem radio worthy? Like what, what are the characteristics of a radio worthy poem? Well, it has to be a poem. Here's what I, as someone who hosts a radio show and has done so for many years, my greatest fear is the listener's hand moving toward the dial to turn it. And I want to read poems that are undial turnable, right? You're thinking, wow, 
I'm not such a poetry fan, but this is a really cool poem and it's really interesting. You have to be able to, to get it at some level immediately, you know? And, I, and you and I both know lots of poets whose work is not accessible on a first reading or a second reading or indeed on maybe any reading. And those poems, which may be marvelous poems, they don't work on the radio. So uh, it, it's got to be poems that will grab. I envision my my listener as somebody speeding across Cleveland in their car thinking, yeah, that's pretty cool. And radio is just a perfect medium for poetry. You yeah, know, it, yeah, it, it really is. Do, do, you, do you think about doing it? Is there like a podcast version? Do you think about Do you put it out as a podcast? Because that's sort of the way yeah. it works now. Starting this year, we're going to do a podcast to the show. It's about time. So. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And thanks for, for joining us today, George, and uh, and for sharing poems. That's a great book. Hope everybody picks up a copy. And it's good to see you again. One last thing, Tim. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. All your viewers. Tim Green is the hardest working poetry guy in America and has done so much for poets in this country. And I, I just want you to know you're you're an amazing guy and amazing editor. So thank you for everything you've done. Tim. Well, thanks, George. I really appreciate that. Coming from you, that means especially a lot because I'm a huge fan. So thanks a lot, George. Yes. Bye. Yep. Take care. Okay, and that was George Bilkier once again with uh, Central Air, his newest book. Um, and you can check out more at georgebilgear.com. It's spelled like it's, it is on the, uh, on the, the title of the, the book here. Um, George Bilgear, uh, G, you know, George, B-I-L-G-E-R-E, George Bilgear is how to spell it. That is George Bilgear, Central Air is his newest book. And now we have about, uh, I don't know, we're waiting for Kate Gale to come. She couldn't make it until uh, the half-past hour mark. She's a very busy woman publishing a small press and uh, in her own poetry as well and, and being a professor too. Um, so let's see. Uh, I thought maybe I would share this poem. It is tax day, and um, I hate that I have to read it myself. I thought we had audio before pulling it up because it's a little bit long. But this is our one of our every day, every time that it's tax day, this... Uh, Every year, this poem sort of goes slightly viral on, on YouTube or, or on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere, and we get a lot of new hits. And um, this is uh, John Brem's poem, Dear Internal Revenue Service. So let's, uh, let's read that now, and uh, we'll share it with you. Luckily, that I got my taxes done. Hope you did, too, because today is the deadline, April 18th this year, uh, in the United States anyway. Okay, so here is uh, John Brem, Dear Internal Revenue Service. Thank you for your letter informing me of the errors in my 2005 filing. I'm enclosing a check for $5,657 to cover the tax, which I evidently still owe, and the interest on that tax. I hereby like to ask, however, that you forgive the penalty of $1,136, since the employer failed to send me a 1099 for the income I made as a consultant that year. Of course, I realize it's my responsibility to report all my income, but in the absence of a 1099, I simply forgot. I have a number of clients, and I'm obviously not the best bookkeeper, nor am I particularly good with money. I am a poet as well as a freelance writer, and being a poet isn't quite as lucrative as you might imagine. You may notice, for example, that for all of, our, of last year, I received $57 in royalties. A friend of mine helpfully observed that I could have made more money as a parking meter, to which I replied that I could have made a lot more money as a parking meter and gotten a lot more respect as well. Unlike most hardworking poets in America, I don't teach, mainly because I don't know anything. I'm probably not all that far from the cliched notion of the romantic poet you yourself may hold. 
I get stoned sometimes and stare at trees and clouds for hours on end, try to see the wind, etc. I weep for no reason, remember real or imagined slights for ages, and lick my wounds with words. I live in a studio apartment, a garret, if you will. I have a large desk, it's like the deck of a ship, and I, its landlocked captain, gazing out to sea. It sits underneath my sleeping loft, which my girlfriend likes to call the lofty loft, for reasons I won't go into here, as they may seem inappropriate, or too personal, or perhaps irrelevant to my purpose, which is to ask, ask your forgiveness of the penalty, and to offer reasons why, by explaining the hardships of the poet's life. I'll just say that sometimes it gets pretty lofty up there, and sometimes we imagine we are on a magic carpet drifting smoothly above the city below, in its state of semi-controlled slow-motion collapse, and on out over the ocean, which she loves and fears just like I do, or over the summer campy Catskills, where we can aff can't afford to buy a country house, with her worn-down mountains and charmingly self-effacing trees, so unlike the impossibly massive and overly serious cedars and hemlocks and Douglas fir trees of the Pacific Northwest, where I used to live until poverty forced me east. Those trees are brooders, dignified, misshrouded monsters, beautiful, of course, and awe-inspiring. I wonder if you have felt this, but too damply archaic and imposing and in uncomprehendable for my taste. I like a tree you can take in with a single steady gaze. I wonder if you are as bad at poetry as I am at accounting. Perhaps we are the inverted mirror images of each other. I don't imagine you get to ask, you don't get I don't imagine you get asked that question very often or receive many letters like this one. Maybe you're reading this out loud even now to your office. I almost said cell mates. Of my book, a reviewer once said that one simply can't resist reading these poems out loud to someone else. And I wonder if you feel like this, the irresistible need to read this poem aloud. I'm sure the letters you received are mostly angry ones. The kind that say things like, here, take my goddamn money and buy Dick Cheney a few more gallons of puppy blood for his nightly ablutions. Or, dear IRS, please use the enclosed check to purchase some handheld rocket launchers to blast the fuck out of some poor Iraqi's house, which you prefer to call a suspected insurgent stronghold. Or, please give this money to the CEO of Exxon so we can buy silk socks while I regurgitate my supper and try not to starve. I thought of taking that approach. I felt the desire to get in a shot or two to give voice to righteous indignation, treat you like a non-person, someone mindlessly and heartlessly saying no all day long. But I'm done with all that. I want to reach you, to speak to you as a fellow human being immersed in the same joys and suffering as I am. Didn't you once write poems yourself, poems of anguish and loss and loneliness? And to remind you of the karmic delights of forgiveness that await you if you release me from this debt. So that was uh, John Brem's poem, Dear Internal Revenue Service, from Rattle number, what was it, number 30. And it was a Rattle Poetry Prize honorable mention. Back in the day, we called them honorable mentions instead of finalists. And then everybody was calling them finalists anyway, and so we switched to finalists. But that was John Brem with, I think, the, the best tax poem I can remember reading. So Cake Atlas here. So I'm going to jump to a break, and we will be uh, right back once you get connected and make sure everything works. So hang on, hold tight, and I will be right back.
And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, Kate Gales here. Kate Gales, co-founder and managing editor of Red Hen Press, editor of the Los Angeles Review, and teaches in the low residency MFA program at the University of Nebraska in poetry, fiction, creative, nonfiction, and, and in the Ashland, Ohio MFA program. She's also author of seven books of poetry, including The Goldilocks Zone from the University of New Mexico Press in 20, 2014, and Echo Light from Red Mountain in 2014, and six librettos, including Rio de Sangre, a libretto for an opera with composer Don Davis, which had its world premiere in 2010. Um, her newest book, The Loneliest Girl, was just published again by University of New Mexico Press. And here she is, Kate Gale. Hey, Kate, how you doing? Pretty good. Good to see you, Tim. Yeah, it's been a while. I think we had an event like a few months before the whole lockdown thing, and then I haven't seen you since. So it's really good to see you. And uh, and I've seen that Red Hen Thre- Press is thriving with um, all the things you do online and, and the, the video shows you have like this, the readings that you've done online. Um, it's cool to see you. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, our, our nimble staff have been doing great work, and I'm very glad to be working with them. You, you know, obviously, you've met Toby and Monica, and they are terrific. Yeah, you just always have an outstanding staff. It's really great. I mean, it's one of the best things about Red Hand Press. It's just the, the interns you have are great, and then you have a full staff that's great. And um, and I always am sending people your way, because because <laughs> people ask me if I could have an intern, you know, if they could have an intern. And I say, well, we're not really, it's not a fun environment for you sitting in my living room. But uh, for Red Hand Press, maybe. So maybe apply there. Um, but anyway, do you want to start out? You're, the Loneliest Girl is your newest book. I'll put it on screen so everybody can see the beautiful cover. I love this cover. Um, do you want to start out reading a poem from the book? Sure. Um, I'm going to start with the opening poem of the book. Um, it's called, the, there are 10 things you need to know to be a woman. And this is based on, uh, the, the 10, um, commandments in Hamilton, which was based on the 10 commandments of crack. When you're young and the little boys say, let me see you pee. You need to say no. They want to see under your dress. Bad things can happen. They come for you. When you're in school and the other girls laugh at you because you're dressed like a halfwit, don't expect your mama to care. She'll laugh with her sisters, with her mother. They'll all laugh at you. They are laughing right now. They come for you. When you grow breasts and the boys say they just want to look look at them, they don't mean it. They mean they want you to undress. They mean they want to have sex with you and then with someone else and then with someone else and then with someone else. They will tell everyone how easily you slipped off your blouse, unhooked your bra, stepped out of your skirt. You thought it was love. They thought you were easy pickings. They come for you. In college at the parties, if you have a drink and then another, his penis will slip inside you. And if you have had too many drinks, so many penises will slip inside you. It will be a party of penises inside you, a memory of penises, a throwdown of penises. And you will try to stand afterward. You will try to walk. You will hear them laughing. They come for you. You move to another state and start over. You date doctors and lawyers. You are taken to the country club where the fancy men put their hands on you. They take you to high-rise hotels where they grope you in exchange for dinner. You put out. You are popular. They come for you. You get a job. You ask the women at your company to help you. You want help meeting important people, making connections. The women will not help you with anything. They sew the scarlet A to your blouse. They come for you. You get married and then you get a divorce. You hope the women will invite you over to meet their single friends. They do not want you alone with their husbands. They don't trust you with their boyfriends. When you try to take talk with their men, they come for you. The only way you could avoid attention is to get fat, but you live in a city where fat is not permitted. 
for a few years, you let yourself get a little bit fat and you have a few more friends. You have a fat boyfriend. Then you join a gym and lose weight. The women turn on you. They come for you. You could become religious, talk to God, become a Jesus lover or a God follower. And there in church, maybe the other women would like you. The other men would assume you aren't about sex. Don't people pretty much stop having sex once they join a church? You attend church one Sunday. Everyone can see you are a fake. They come for you. You are a motherfucking skinny ass bitch. You stomped around the world in your life building castles. You painted the sky and planted trees. You have broken the goddamn rules. And when they wrote new ones, you broke those. You are out of control. You are the wild New Testament of women. You are breaking the 11th commandment, which is thou shalt not speak if thou art a woman. You are speaking in your dirty boots without shame. Where is your shame, woman? Where is your shame? Why do you not hang your head, woman? They come for you. They come for you. They come for you. Yeah, and that was the opening poem. Um, there are 10 things you need to know to be a woman uh, from Kate Gale's newest book, The Loneliest Girl. Um, can you explain, um, Kate, the the sort of the central metaphor for the for the book, which is a really, the, the book, the whole book is sort of a um, extended metaphor using the Medusa um, and, and other Greek figures. Um, so can you tell about the concept of the book and, and how it came to be? Um, so I became very interested in the idea of shaming. Um, and, um, I had, have, have had my own experiences with shaming, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that, um, shaming is a very, uh, very, very much a female experience. Um, I thought about how many of my students used to talk about the walk of shame, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, that, that whole idea of the walk of shame. And then the more I kept thinking about shame, I, I, I thought about how in both the Bible and in Greek myths, women are supposed to carry quite a lot of shame. And, um, and so I wanted to weave in both, both the biblical idea of shame, but, but very much the Greek idea of shame that women are supposed to carry. And there's so many things we're supposed to be ashamed for uh, or ashamed of. Uh, our bodies primarily. And and the sad thing about being ashamed of your body is you live in it. You can't get away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, anything sexual that is done to your body is something that you're ashamed of. Even if, even if it isn't your fault, it is your fault. And then, you know, if your children are naughty, you're ashamed. If you're, if your husband is rude at a party, you're ashamed. There's just many, many things that women end up carrying around shame for and so I wanted to sort of go to the bottom of that shame pool, um, which I was experiencing myself at the time that I started writing this and and just go down to the dark with it. And I, I think that that there are women who uh, and people who experience shame their whole life and it takes them to this sort of dark place. And um, so I wanted to see how deeply I was willing to explore um, the shame bit, the walk of shame. Yeah, yeah, it's such an important topic. It feels like shame has been weaponized in a way that it never could have been before um, with social media. Um, right. Do you think that um, that aspect is, is something that drew you to, to writing the book? I mean... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, we live in the time of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the stones are, are social media. And what people will say things on social media that they would not say to your face, you know, um, 
people will say, I want to kill you. I want to burn down your house. I want to kill your children. I hope your children die. Um, you know, uh, Steve Allman, who Red Hen published, um, published, uh, I think, uh, a book or an essay of all the things that have been said to him over the years. And, and like someone was just like, you know, hoping his, his child would die. And, you know, you can't imagine someone coming up to him and saying that in person about his, I think, three-year-old daughter at the time. But um, obviously someone, someone wrote that, someone mm -hmm. typed words out. Um, and so social media is just sort of this freeway experience of what people are willing to put down. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it, you know, Rattle's gotten plenty of that, too. I mean, we've gotten threats to firebomb our office. And then you're like, how credible do I take this? You know what I mean? And and it's it's a difficult time. And, and nobody, you know, would ever say that. Like, nobody's ever said any of the things they've said to me, to my face, ever. Like, if I go anywhere, the, the whole, all the human, you know, machinations turn back on and we become civil again. But, um, you know, but, but online, it just doesn't exist. There's no, there's no filter. It's like your brain is like directly wired into the tweet or something. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just interesting time and a great book for that. And then of course the cover is such a great image. Um, who, who did the cover? This is a perfect sort of metaphor and example for the book of hiding the hair is what Medusa is right. kind of doing in this, in this cover. I put it on the screen one more time. That's just a beautiful, perfect cover. Um, yeah, so the, the artist, Nancy Farmer, is kind of obsessed with, with Medusa and has done a lot of Medusa paintings, Medusa drying her hair, Medusa taking a bath, but this is the one that appealed to me the most. Um, and and um, yeah, I think it's, I, I feel very grateful to her for this cover, but I really love it. So I, I really went looking for Medusa covers that, that sort of humanized her in some way, mm -hmm. because I mean, you've read the book and you know that. I gifted Medusa with a lot of different um, endings to her story. I wanted Medusa to be able to have a sort of better ending uh, to her story than the one that she's given in Greek myths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful way the book moves as a, as a whole unit. It's 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 very much a um, a, a, a thematic book. Um, do you want to read another poem? Um, what should we read next? Um, well. Um, Let's let's try the, the, the poem Shame. Okay, perfect. It's on page six. Thank you. Uh, and it starts with a couple of quotes from the Bible. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Uh, and then from Revelations, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. I entered her world. I came chewing light, chewing bread, chewing anything my lips could get around. They said, stop eating, you'll be a fat girl. My lips planted around corn cobs and chicken legs. By age 10, pine sap, cat and dog food, hay, grass, dandelions, clover, wild chives, tree bark, mold, horse mash, forest mushrooms, leaves, sand, mica, fish eyes, fluff, plucked from newly caught fish. I cooked a snake and ate it. I wanted to eat earth. They said, don't, you'll be a fat girl. No one will like you, go light on waffles. In the woods, I ate everything. At the table, they watched me. Zippers exploded, buttons flew. You must dress, they said, only God can see you naked. I could be watery thin, have a twig body, delicate branches for arms. I could be a plucked flower, a vine, 
why do you insist on being a tree? We will live in our bodies. We may not pay taxes. We may not have children. We may not make music, but we will live in our bodies of which from the beginning to the end of the Bible, we must feel shame. When I see a thin girl, I feel shame for my splendid thighs and backside. We live with our pulse, our windowed eyes, our heads and their place in the firmament, our bodies, lumpy heaps of globular energy, a thicket of longing in which we wobble around earth. I scoop bread and eat, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Aren't all our bodies God? Isn't every shape divine? God declared early and late the body, a seat of shame. Yeah. And that was shame. Another poem from the, the loneliest girl. And, and, what do you think it is about women that draws so much of that kind of, of venom? I was looking, just recently, uh, Megan showed me, I think it was Chris Pratt. Is that the guy who's the Jurassic Park actor? Mm-hmm. I mean, he just had a post that was like, happy birthday, honey, and it was his wife. And she showed me the comments just on the Instagram post. And it was like, I mean, I don't want to, I can't, you know, repeat most of them, but like just awful comments about her appearance and just she's a regular happy person on a boat (laughs) i mean what is it do you think that draws so much ire and and animosity and just hatred about 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 women in particular yeah it is it is strange women do seem to be an easy target and you can see in my first poem i'm i i'm interested in the way women target each other as well i i didn't want to put this on men it was the other women who sewed the the Scarlet A on Hester, not the men of the town, the other women. I think women are very hard on other women. Um, I think, you know, when women are often gussying up to go out on the town, it's uh, it's partly because they want to know what the other women will think of whatever they're wearing. And um, so we don't do as good a job as we should uh, of, of, reminding each other that we're all beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the body positivity movement that Lindy West has been working with and Roxane Gay has has done something toward that. But um, I think the tendency in this country is just to tear, tear each other apart. Um, and yeah, I mean, what, what's wrong with Chris Pratt's uh, wife? I know there was a lot of love for his ex-wife, but he's, he's married to somebody else now, people. Move on, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I wonder, I mean, is it as simple as just, like, the mating hierarchy? Like, we're all driven for better genes and pushing our genes forward, and so we're all competing in those ways subconsciously that we don't know? And that, that seems like the root of a lot of it is just our unconscious drives, you know, from biology, right? I mean, it, it kind of seems like that. It seems like, like a war of words all the time. I think that <clears throat> human beings have an enormous capacity for cruelty and bullying, um, <clears throat> I have an aviary and <clears throat> sorry, just need more water. Yeah, no problem. Um, <clears throat> I'm always amazed. Um, you know, when one bird gets hurt, the other birds very quickly will, ki- they'll, they'll kill it. Well, they'll kill it within a couple hours. And so, hmm. um, I, I think that Shirley Jackson, the lottery thing, um, people will, 
think they sense weakness in somebody um, and then pounce. And then everybody starts saying mean things. So that's that social media cascade you'll see. Somebody says something mean and then other people suddenly feel like they have permission. And then there's this jumping mm-hmm. you know, of, of people all saying something about someone that they often don't know very much about. Um, you know, you know, so people are saying something about you or rattle, and maybe they don't even know what the beginning, what was the beginning of this kerfuffle, right? You don't know, but you've just decided to jump on and say something as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's just, there's so much to, it's just going on um, with with the way that social media interacts with with our natural tendencies to be cruel. Um, but let's. I want to make sure we read a number, good number of poems. So let's read another poem. And I want to talk a lot about uh, about Red Hen Press too. So don't let me forget yeah. to talk about that. But the book was so interesting that I wanted to go into that a little bit in more depth. Um, so let's go to page twenty five. Um, this poem is called Paul Poppy. Um, and it's based on this sort of Greek idea of tall poppy. Um, actually, you see a little bit of this going on in Ukraine now. But the Greek idea was that when you go into a town, you have to get rid of the leaders right away, who they referred to as the tall poppies, mm-hmm. and then you can kind of control the town. Um, and I kind of took this into the bullying um, concept. She walks around with her head in the air like she's somebody. Who is she? She came to town, built a library. Who cares? Who needs a library? We have our own books. We have our own parties. She's never invited me to one of her parties. Well, she invited me once. Once I got there, she never talked to me, never offered me a glass of wine. Her brain must be a crowded little place telling her, you're terrific. She's fallen flat on her face now. She'll be down for a while. I used to think I could help her. I wanted to say, slow down, do what I say, you'll be okay. I wanted to say, keep your head down. In this town, they'll eat you alive. But she kept laughing and marching around like she knew everything. Now that she's flat on her face, I hope she learns her lesson. I hope she learns to keep her mouth shut. She thought she was the tall poppy around here. People like her get their houses burned down. They get stung by a buzz of bees, their heads are cut off. Goodbye, tall poppy. Yeah, she thought she was the tall poppy around here. What a line. That was tall poppy uh, from The Loneliest Girl. Um, and one of the things that mentions it um, um, in, in some of the the um, um, the blurbs on the back, but but you grew up in a cult. Um, mm-hmm. did, how does, what is that role? I mean, you, you can't say that without being, everybody being so curious what that means and entailed. Um, wh- what was that like and, and what does that mean? And, uh, and how does that relate to the book is like the, the follow-up question to that. Well, um, I grew up in a cult and um, there's one poem in here called The Stoning Circle. And, and this book almost became called The Stoning Circle. Mm-hmm. I will, it, was, it was The Stoning Circle. I think my contract calls it The Stoning Circle. Um, because one of the things that happened at the cult, the cult was a very right-wing religious cult. And I was there until I was 18. And one of the things that happened there was um, it would often be like a, quote, devotion circle, but everybody would be sitting in a circle. I was in, you know, the quote, the girl squad. And someone might just say, um, you know, so, so Joni, did you, did you see anything happen today? And she said, I don't think so. Go around a couple of rounds until finally, because someone's supposed to come up with something. And finally someone says, well, you know, 
Kathy was kind of Kathy was kind of saying some some idle words. She was saying something, and then and then someone else is just like, "Yeah, I did see Kathy do something." So I was Kathy when I was on the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then pretty soon everybody has come up with something that I did. And the, the thing is that um, on any given day, I, I probably did something. It's just a matter of whether they, whether they're thinking about it or whether they want to come up with it. And then there would be a beating, right? Wow. And, um, and I would say this is something that happened on a fairly regular basis. And so weirdly, the whole, um, everything about the whole current social media thing reminds me very much mm-hmm. of experience of the farm. Because, you know, when someone throws the first stone, then everybody starts to kind of jump in. And sometimes people come up with really minor things like, yeah, she was kind of weird when she asked for salt and pepper at lunch. We're like, ah, duly noted, mm-hmm. you know? And because, I mean, like, we're talking a cult where, I, I mean, at 18, when I left there, I had never slept in a bed. I had never heard a swear word in my whole life. I'd never seen somebody smoke a cigarette. I didn't even know what drugs were. And I didn't know what sex was. So how many crimes could I have committed, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, I probably kicked somebody and grabbed something and, you know, ran around when I was supposed to be doing something else. Or, you know, they could come up with little minor crimes and it would add up to, you know. And so so I, I do think that, like, uh, I was just talking with a friend of mine recently. I think that a... Uh, someone who who hadn't had all of that trauma um in other words you know someone who wasn't a trauma survivor already who who went through sort of a social media um experience might have experienced that differently might have just said wow that's a little harsh but for me it was just re-experiencing my 15 years at the farm Mm -hmm. and i i went under um so um I, hence writing this book about, about darkness and shame, because yeah. it was a, it was very much, it was a very brutal experience for me because it felt like living my whole farm life again. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what it does is it triggers this deep instinct that we have. Um, you know, it, it feels, I think, it, I think everybody kind of experiences a similar thing. It feels like a kind of drowning, like a social drowning. And you're like trying to get above water again. And I think it's because if you were excommunicated from a group, you know, through our entire hunter-gatherer history, that was a death sentence. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's this like reflex we have if we're about to be outcast to be like, no, don't kick me out. Like, don't kill me, you know, and you're, you're trying to claw your way back into their good graces or something. And that's the thing that's exploited. Like they found that, that trigger within our evolutionary biology that, that makes us desperate. And so people have all these desperate apologies for things that they're just taken out of context and they don't understand the right way. And it's just a mis- misunderstanding. And um, I think that's something that happens all the time. And it's something that's being exploited as shame is weaponized through the social media. Um, mm. and, and so that's another reason why this is such an interesting book. Um, I mean, because it is, it is cult behavior, too, because it's the enforcement of a, of a sort of a collective worldview. You know, that's, that's the purpose of like the stoning is to make sure nobody thinks out of line. Right. And um, yeah, and so there's so many parallels. It's like a, it's a sort of a self-organizing, broad-based cult or something that's going on online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's weird that it's all part of the left. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all, it's all the left. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, one of the things too 
Um, I, I think we, we, because the right-wing fascism is such a salient example in recent history that we think of that that is fascism. But fascism is the bundle think. It's the group think. And, you know, and the, the symbol is the fascies, which is a club, a bundle of sticks turned into a club. So they'll beat you in a submission. And there's an axe on top. So they'll chop your head off if you don't submit after being beaten. And um, it's a human, the whole thing is a deep human impulse that we have as creatures who grew up in small tribes. And so that's what the whole social media is just exploiting for, for personal gain in a lot of cases or for just a little dopamine hit of being part of the in-group too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so about the, the, the cult, you were there till you were 18. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you leave? Like, how did you realize like being in a cult and not having any outside experience? I mean, obviously some of the experience you had was bad. And so you knew that it was something was wrong maybe. Um, but how did you know to leave and what was it like leaving? Um, basically I, I had been wanting to leave for quite a while, but I knew that I couldn't leave till I was 18 because I mean, obviously at some point it had been made clear to me that I would be a runaway child and that I would just be brought back. Um, and so I, I wanted to wait till I was 18 and quote an adult, um, to leave. And then I announced that I was leaving and, um, and they said, you know, well, okay, you can leave. But um, I, I, I mean, I first said that I was going to leave and there was this whole thing of, you know, well, you need to get out of here and it's sort of a back and forth. But at any rate, at the point that I was leaving, they thought that I would just leave for a couple of days, go sleep in the woods, which I had done before, and then I would come back. And so my mother like I was, I had a, a sleeping bag. My mother gave me $2. I had a harmonica and a dog. And, and I, I think the idea was that they thought I would leave for a couple of days, sleep in the woods and come back. And obviously I did not. Um, but when most people that left there and there were other people that had left, went to family members. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I still think I'm the only person that ever left that cult at least who didn't really have anybody to take them in. And um, I, I did contact my father almost as soon as I left. My father is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He met me. He knew I was basically a homeless person. I think I was living in my car when I met him. Um, and he just was like, yeah, nice to meet you. You know, good for you. Glad you got out. But, but no interest in helping me out in any way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I had never met him before. And I think, you know, um, he already had another family by that time and he just didn't have any interest in me. Um, <clears throat> so, um, I didn't, I didn't end up getting to know him at that point. And I've actually only met him like maybe five times in my whole life. And one of them was at AWP, Oh wow! <laughs> AWP, Pennsylvania, uh, in Philadelphia. Um, he met my husband for the first times. Like, did he come to see you there? Because you were there. Well, he lives in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. He lives in Philadelphia. So uh, since he lives in Philadelphia, we, my my husband and my daughter and I met him there. Um, but again, this might have been like the fifth visit altogether since I left um, the farm. Mm-hmm. Um, so not not a whole lot of visits there. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I don't know what I had hoped would happen when I saw him when I first left the farm. I'm sure some part of me hoped that he would be like, oh, you know, I could help you out or something like that. But no, that wasn't going to happen because the whole time I'd been growing up, I'd had some idea that like 
if my father knew I was here, he would want to rescue me or something, but yeah. that failed to happen. Um, so basically when I left, I, um, you know, was eventually babysitting. I had a live-in babysitting job for a little while, made money, finally got a car. Um, but it, you know, you know how some people say that who we are as adults is mostly influenced by genes, your, your genetic code. Mm -hmm. And some people would say it's mostly influenced by how you're raised, right? Mm -hmm. And since I grew up in a cult with almost no education on a farm in rural New Hampshire and walked out of there as an 18-year-old and eventually decided to get a PhD, and my mother's parents taught at Cornell and my father taught at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm going to go with I'm one for the genes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. I mean, you know, some things more than others. I, I've heard that, that how it works is mostly the genes influence everything and then you can, you know, fuck it up with with <laughs> with nature, you know. Um, but we, we should keep I want to ask some follow up questions, but we should do some more another poem. So um, what, what poem next? Uh, let's do wound care. It's one of my favorites. Um, I think, you know, um, Tim, that in 2015, it was a momentous year for our family. Um, my husband, Mark had a heart attack and that is referenced in this. Crossed to the other side of the street to avoid the wounded, gone to sleep to forget the wounded, watched the wounded on television watched wounding on television, read fantastical stories on, of wounding, wrote fantastical stories of one's own wounding, hidden wounds up your sleeve, down your pants, through your body, under your socks, between your toes, in the curves of arms and legs, in the radius of the abdominal cavity, lasting wounds due to damage to underlying structures, bone, muscle, tendon, arteries, nerves. Cosmetic results, not the primary consideration for wound repair. Bites cause high rate of infection. Animal bites, human bites. We did not mean to wound others, but we did. We wounded our friends, we wounded our lovers. On my husband's back is a salt heart. I swim every day in the ocean, ride behind him on the motorcycle. The salt heart where my breasts press against his shirt. His heart has a new valve. One long, dark scar across his chest, a wound of slicing deeply, forcing back the rib cage, taking out the heart, replacing the valve in the heart chamber with titanium. He ticks like a clock. When I say I have been wounded, I mean darkness. Cherry blossoms open for 14 days. Petals drop, leaves begin. Be there for the first opening of white on pink. Be there when the white on pink is blinding. Be there when petals drop and green arrives. Be there into the green and falling of leaves. The bark sings to you, the leaves sing, the cherry blossoms sing of wounding, of healing, of white on pink, of blossoms. Feel petals blowing toward you. Feel morning come. Another great point is Wound Care, again, from The Loneliest Girl, Kate Gale's new book. Um, so, so Kate, so after, um, after leaving the cult, how does poetry fit in? Like, when was it that you discovered poetry, and was that a part of the healing process? 
Well, I actually started writing poetry right away. Uh, as soon as I left there, I started writing some extremely bad poetry. And um, so at first, whenever I finish a journal full of poetry, so I was just long-handing it in my journal, I would bury those journals in the woods. And that is probably the, for the best. Um, and um, actually, um, I, I, I ended up at Arizona State and through a series of misadventures, um, basically I had a boyfriend who had told me not to go to college. So that's why I decided to go to college. And, um, and I ended up at Arizona State and Rita Dove was teaching there and Norman Doobie were te was teaching there. And so I wrote hundreds of poems as an undergraduate and that made a lovely bonfire by the time I graduated. So I started writing poetry right away, and I think it was kind of a means of processing everything mm -hmm. beginning. Um, and then I moved to California and started working on poetry more seriously. So I would say that pretty much all my poetry until, until I got to graduate school was fairly bad. Um, but but I think that's the way we get to good poetry is writing a lot of bad poetry. Mm -hmm. um, but for some reason, poetry became like, like I instantly jumped into it as soon as I left the farm. It's just that I, I didn't, I didn't know what good poetry was because as you and I know, Tim, you don't know what good poetry is until you read a lot of it. Uh -huh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I love the expression, um, you know, aphorisms are our, uh, our prompt for this week. And the one um, that I heard recently is there anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. And I love that one because that's how it really works. It takes time to build up. But but it's so interesting because it feels like poets, almost all of us have uh, some kind of big thing we're grappling with that makes us, drew, drew us to poetry in the first place. You know, I had an a interesting childhood too. And in my first book, which was with Red Hen Press, was about trying to come to terms with that, really. Um, mm -hmm. And um, among other things as well. But but um, it feels like that we're all driven by that sense of trying to make sense of the senseless. And that's, that's what sort of makes, makes poetry happen. Um, so how, so just kind of moving through, after you left, you started writing poetry. How did Red Hat Press come to be? Well, um, I had moved to California to, to go to graduate school and eventually to get a PhD. And um, I actually, what I wanted to do in California was to get a graduate degree, maybe a job, um, have fun, uh, see if I could like have a big literary life and also get laid. And, um, and I think getting laid might've gotten in the way of some of those other goals because while I was getting my master's, I got pregnant. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, I was married. I had just gotten married. Um, so I really got pregnant on the honeymoon. And um, so that slowed me down a little bit, but by the time I, I was 30 and I was finishing my master's, I was getting divorced and um so marriage divorce quickly tumbled together um i i had i, I guess i had finished my master's i was getting my first teaching job and i had a couple kids and um i decided that um i really wanted la to be a more literary city and part of it was that um my my ex worked in film, so I was really aware of all the great stories being made into movies in this city, mm -hmm. and I wanted to be part of a, a different kind of story, you know. 
And, and, and you, in 1994, when we were getting Red Hand started, there were no writing programs. The bookstores were closing. Um, Sisterhood Bookstore and Bread and Roses was being turned into a bridal shop. And it just felt like literary life was kind of being compressed. And yet there were all these great writers in mm-hmm. L.A. So yeah. I thought we had a press here. And there were like Rattle wasn't going. There, there were no great literary magazines, you know, happening. And so I felt like um, if if there was a great press here, then other things would would start happening. And and I, I I don't give Red Hand any credit for the amazing things that have happened, like Antioch and 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 all of that, because I think that that was just bound to start happening. But um, that that's what I wanted. I wanted. I kept saying that L.A. was going to be the next Paris, and so when. So I was in a writing group and I met uh, Mark and um, he was like, oh, let's do this together. And we started dating and eventually we did get married so we could fight about the press more easily. But um, when we first got started, we did not have any money. We had just both gotten divorced and we didn't have anything. But he agreed to sell his car to get get the thing going and then his furniture. And then he drove a shitty car and we had no furniture for the next 15 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but we just sat on the floor. The kids had no television, so they sat on the floor and played Dungeons and Dragons. And I think that's a good way to become a storyteller. Um, and it, it was it was it was great. Um, and th- so that was kind of our jumping off point. So at first, he and I did all the work, and it was many years before we started having staff. And um, so right now, Red Hen is in Pasadena, where we've been now for 10 years. We have 10 staff altogether, including including Mark and I. Um, and we have very diverse staff. Um, most of the staff are, um, you know, uh, are, are, are people of color or LGBTs. We're very proud of how diverse the staff are. Um, they're young, nimble, energetic millennials, and uh, they're, they're terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and you know, we go to the foreign rights fairs. We go to London and Frankfurt and in, in normal times, Beijing, um, Guadalajara. And uh, we publish 25 books a year, but it took us a long time to build to that point. Mm-hmm. A lot of work, a lot of work. As you know, this whole thing is a labor of love. Sure, and and very gradual, you know, incremental growth too, as well. But having the hen house there, which is a, a um, in Pasadena, it used to be a church. So there's a stage, and there's just a great area for that. And then there's office area. It's a wonderful, wonderful office that you've got. Um, let's see. So I want to I want to talk more about publishing, but but there's some questions here that I should pass along. Talking more about the writing process and and the topics we were covering earlier. Um, so Dick Westheimer asks, um, do you wish you had some of those old poems back to inform your new work? Do you ever wish you didn't get rid of those? Uh, no, I don't. Um, Rita Dove says that your old poems are, are like leaves at the bottom of the pond, and that's kind of what fertilizes the pond. And I like that metaphor. I think that it's good to just let them go, because I believe that your imagination is like a well that's always going to be bubbling over. There's always going to be more great ideas. And so I always feel like I can go back to the well and there's going to be more great ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Spartacus and Agnostris asks, uh, Kate, do you think each poem creates its own reality with its use of language or that every poem refers to experiences from everyday life? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I, 
I mean, I like to think that um, that poems straddle the imaginary world and everyday life at best. Um, like, I, I like to think that poems have their feet in both worlds because poems are at best a marriage of the intellect and the imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, well, lastly, let's, I think we have time for like two more poems. So we'll do a poem, then a little more talking and then the last poem. So, um, so let's do another one. Um, so this poem is on page 73 and it's called those who loved Medusa. So this is the, this is the backstory of Medusa. For those of you who just know the story of Medusa, where her head's cut off and her head is used to kill the Kraken. Um, the question is, how did she end up in the island in the cave of Sistine? And this poem kind of answers that question. Um, she was being punished. And um, so this, this poem tells that story of how she got there. Those who loved Medusa. You, Poseidon, came to me in the temple. I laughed at suitors, men in love. You said I was a thing of beauty, a cup for love. You smashed the cup, you poured the wine. In Athena's temple, you raped me on the floor. My eyes met Athena's, she found me guilty. After the rape, I gathered myself in blood. Athena whispered, I curse you. Athena said, you wore red, your skirts rustled, you smiled. Your hair will rustle. Your face will be unforgettable. Your silky hair will be snakes. Your voice a hiss. You are creature. Carry this story forward. Rape is the fault of the victim. Carry this story forward. The female turns the key, opens the door. You raped me in the temple. I am that thing. Hold my head aloft. Laugh for generations. Don't stop laughing until Medusa is synonymous with death. Turn me into that thing you fear. Make me monster. Make me creature you fear in the dark. You fear the thing in the dark, wet, ripe, swollen, waiting for pleasure, that thing demanding. Fear the woman with her own snakes. Men kept visiting me in the cave on the island of Sistine. Men kept visiting the cave. It isn't true they all died. Imagine the men who entered the cave found love in the dark. Imagine the men who braved the forest found by lips. Imagine the men who found by lips. That was Those Who Loved Medusa. Again, from The Loneliest Girl, Kate Gale's newest book. Um, have you always been interested in, in um, Greek mythology, in other mythologies? Or um, it's, it's one of the things that I have trouble connecting with. I think it's because I, my brain's not structured right. I can never keep track of the different names and... I just throw my hands up and I can, I just can never remember. And if there's a poem that someone submits, that's like, you know, you can tell a poem is well-written, even if you don't know what the hell they're writing about. Um, so if it's a well-written poem and it's about a Greek, I go ahead and read again, but I can't keep that in my head. Um, so, so is that something you've always been interested in or did you do a lot of reading and research for this book? I mean, I did a lot of research, but I am interested in Greek mythology. Uh, I, I mean, I just feel like the, the twin pillars of Western civilization are Greek mythology and, the Judeo-Christian ethic, and I'm kind of interested in how how those two continue to influence us today, and and um, you know that the whole narcissus, right? I mean, like narcissism comes from this idea of, of the the narc, you know, the god narc, narcissus looking at himself in the mirror, and, and I'm just interested how much of it still 
you know, Cassandra, right? The idea of being able to tell the future, how much of it still is part of our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think maybe if it was taught like in sixth, seventh grade or whenever we started doing mythology, if it was taught as more like, these are archetypes that represent right. us now and, and people trying to understand human nature. Um, I, I think I might've been interested from the beginning, um, right. but they were taught right. more as like, um, almost like history or something. It was, right. you know, and, and just like, these are stories and we should read these stories. I don't know. They're, they're much more interesting than, than they're given credit for, at least in my school and in the, in the eighties. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, so for Red Hand Press, like what is your, your work life like? Um, I mean, you do so much because you have to, you teach too, and you have your own writing and, and running a press is such a big, big effort. Um, how, what is your like day to day like? I mean, is there any normal day? Is that even possible? And you're, you're traveling all over for, for book fairs and things. Um, what is it like to be the, the publisher of a, of a great press? Um, so I, I try to set aside a day or two a week to just do editing because obviously that's a lot of work in itself just going through manuscripts, doing acquisition editing and developmental editing. I always have a stack of manuscripts that I need to do developmental editing. And then I do the acquisition editing. Um, and on the other days, besides, as you know, keeping up with email, which always feels like an endless, an endless thing, um, I, I have meetings that I'm doing. And the meetings are often with either other organizations that we're working with or with donors. We're a nonprofit. Um, so I meet with donors or potential donors. Uh, we do have a director of development who does a lot of the heavy lifting there. So he brings me in when it's a bigger meeting. Um, and so I do some of that. And then I do the sales conferences twice a year. I go to New York to do galley drops. I do the foreign rights fairs. Um, when we're getting ready for sales conferences, I put together the comps for all the books. Um, so Basically, each week, like each department has a bunch of things they're asking me to do. Um, the development department will have a few things they need me to do, maybe go over a piece of a grant or uh, get in touch with a few donors. And then publicity and marketing will say, we need comps for the, these books because I, of course, read all the books and I read a lot. So I'm going to be doing that. And then then the, the editing department will have some some editing jobs for me to do. So I'm just kind of chewing through all of this. Um, and uh, I never get finished. Uh -huh. never. Yeah. Well, I know. I mean, you know, Rattle's smaller than, uh, than Red Hen because you do a lot of so many different things and, and we're sort of a little nugget, but, um, but I, I can't keep up either. And it gets worse every year. Like it never gets better. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, but so, so from looking, um, so how many books does Red Hen publish a year? Is it like, is it still in the twenties? Yeah, 25, about 25. And, and what's the mix? It feels like you're publishing more fiction lately than you used to. Is that true? We are. So, you know, we started, um, yeah, so we, we were about half poetry and half prose for a long time, and we're easing toward uh, maybe a third poetry and two-thirds prose. Uh, you know, <clears throat> there's goods and bads there. Mm -hmm. Prose is a lot more work to edit. Mm -hmm. It's expensive to print. Um, and, um, those are the, those are the cons I would say, but the pros are that there's more possibility in terms of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the marketplace, as you know, for poetry is small. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, we're hoping, um, that we can 
lean into being a bigger press by, by publishing more, more prose. And um, so, so what are the, cause you publish literary fiction too, which is its own like niche within, you know, it's not like the super, it's not like Stephen, you're publishing Stephen King or something. Um, so how much more, how much better does literary fiction sell than poetry? That's something I've never really quite understood. Is it, there are a lot more sales? Is it twice as much, 10 times as much? Yeah, I would say that really the average poetry book that that's being published by an independent press, I mean, like that's not Jericho Brown, you know, is is selling, you know, a thousand to fifteen hundred copies if you're doing well Mm -hmm. Um, and and sometimes less than that. Um, But we're always hoping for a thousand to fifteen hundred copies. Kim Dower has a new book that's coming out, I think, this week. And I'm certainly hoping for a thousand to fifteen hundred copies for I, I wore this dress today for you, Mom. Um, and you know, Doug Manuel has a book coming out with us uh, next year, and Alpha Weaver has a book coming out with us next year, and Eamon Grennan has a new book this year. All of those I think will be in that thousand to fifteen hundred dollar fifteen hundred copy range. Whereas um, you know, uh, Carlos Agende's book, um, Coffee Shopping, Murder, Love. That could sell 5,000 copies. Mm-hmm. That, that came out in hardback. He's extremely, he's, he's handsome, he's charming, he's dynamic, um, he's everywhere. Um, I, I certainly think that we'll sell um, more like 5,000 copies. And also I think we'll sell the foreign rights to that. Mm-hmm. So that published in Spanish and then possibly other languages. Yeah, and, and one of the things that, that I love talking to you is that you've been so upfront about how much you know a poet has to market their own poetry like they have to have a presence like i don't think you even let poets not have a website yes (laughs) and that was like 10 15 years ago um so so how much um, is it possible to be a poet if you don't want to market your poetry is that even a thing anymore i i don't think so i mean the only poet that we have continued to publish who does not have social media and a website um either of them. I mean, like Douglas Manuel does not do social media. I think he considers it somewhat toxic. Um, mm-hmm. For obvious, really obvious it reasons. Is. <laughs> yeah. it, is. it is, especially Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, he has a website and he's also a pretty well-known university professor and he does a ton of events. Mm-hmm. Um, Percival Everett, who we continue to publish, um, does not do social media. and does, I don't think he has a website. Um, but... Um, when people will say to me, oh, well, I noticed Percival Everett doesn't, I'm just like, are you Percival Everett? Are you? <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, not, nothing against that. It's just like, basically, there is a certain stature you could have in the world where you, you might arguably not need that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I'm not as famous as Percival Everett. So I have, I do social media and I do a website. I don't do Twitter. Mm-hmm. I'm a little afraid of Twitter, yeah. but um but I am I am working social media to the best of my little capability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so so if you're when you get a book manuscript, a poetry book manuscript, what are the kind of edits that you do? Is there certain things like advice you can give people putting a manuscript together to make it like stand out from all the other? I don't know how many a year you read. Uh, we just got done reading two thousand little chapbook manuscripts, and it, there is. I mean, I could list things that make it stand out for me. But but what makes it stand out for you? And and when you're working on it later, what edits do you do for a book? Um, I, let, let's do the, what edits I do. First of all, um, so we get about for the Ben Saltman contest, which, you know, is, is, is our $3,000 award. That's our big, big award. 
we get like 750 submissions for that. And I'm the first um, judge for that. I just do it alone and, um, and take it down to three, which gets sent to the final judge. Might be Aqua Weaver this year. I can't remember who the final judge is, but there's always someone like that who's the final judge. Um, and so that, and then just poetry books that come over the transom. Um, what I'm looking for is, I, I mean, seriously, first of all, let's do what I'm willing to edit. I'm very much willing to change the order. And in fact, with Awful Weaver's book, when we published it, we did a tiny bit of juggling. I wanted another poem to be the last poem. And, and he, he agreed with me on that. I also sometimes change the titles because sometimes people really haven't come up with a title. And as I said, even for my own book, it was I had named it The Stoning Circle and it ended up getting changed. So titles, order. Sometimes I'll toss a couple poems out. I'll just be like these two they seem amazing, but they don't actually fit with this book. Um, I'm not, I don't have the time to spend more than like a couple weekends on a poetry book. And I don't know what, what they do like at Grey Wolf or Boa editions. I can only speak for Red Hen, but um, given my work schedule, I'm really gonna spend a couple weekends on a poetry book, whereas I might spend, a, I might spend four to six months on a prose book um, because that's just how my schedule goes. Um, so that means I'm really tweaking the poetry book, not overhauling it. Um, in terms of what I'm looking for, I do think it's good to have a kick-ass poem in the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I do. And I think it's good to have a kick-ass poem at the end because I think a lot of people like look at the beginning, look at the end, and then start rocking their way through. Um, and um, I like it when it's really clear to me what, what idea the, the book is, is working to carry. And it's not just like, oh, these are well-written poems, but what the hell is this about? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, like, this is one of my favorite books right here. You know, I, I'm sure you've read it. You know, yeah. I use this book all the time. That's CD Wright uh, one, what was it? Yeah, One Big Self. CD right, mm -hmm. big self, right? And and it's like there's no time when you're reading that book that you think, what was she doing here? Uh -huh. She's trying to get you to think about the Angola prisons in Louisiana and what it's like to live there, mm -hmm. you know? No doubt in your mind, you know? And so to me, it shouldn't be like I'm just wandering through these well-written poems, but there's no kind of there there, you know? And because all the books that like I really love, um, you know, Deaf Republic and, you know, I, I could just keep going with books that I'm really in love with. You know, I, I get into them and I can feel the muscular structure of meaning going on in the book. And so it isn't just that it's well crafted. There's huge soul underneath. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I would say the exact same thing. It's like um, I used to think that it was that like, if the poem was a, or the book was about something, you could market it better. Like you could, it would work better as a book for the audience. But then I realized, judging book manuscripts, that you remember the book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a big thing. Like just having a slot in your head and say, "Oh, this was that great book that I just read about blah blah blah." Um, that it just it has so much more life. Just having something that it's about. Whereas even if the poems are great and you're wandering through, it's like wandering through this like fog, and then that the fog drifts away and it's gone. You know, I think that's a big part of it too. And there, our experience as editors is the same experience as readers. 
because we, uh, you know, the whole world is full of reading, you know, and you want the stuff that's memorable and that they'll remember and keep with them and read again and share with a friend. And that's what matters. So that's exactly my, that would be my answer too. Yeah. Um, And one last question um, from the audience here. This is um, uh, CB99 videos uh, says, uh, does being an editor make it easier or harder to complete your poems? Kate, do you make a lot of revisions or do you write these more or less in one sitting? And that's something that as an editor, I, I'm curious about too. So how, how is it your experience of that? Um, I think that um, it, it's harder in the sense that, um, first of all, you're cannibalizing the same part of your brain that would be writing. You, you know, you're harvesting from your own creative intellectual pool. Um, if you were digging ditches or, um, like I, I remember many years ago, Lee Young Lee told me that as long as he could, he was going to do manual labor and then write poetry because he wouldn't be using the same part of his brain. And then finally he had to give up the manual labor. I think he was working in a book warehouse when he was in his forties. Um, but you know, you're, you're definitely harvesting that. And so many times at the end of a work day when you've been editing or something, you don't have the heart to write poetry. Um, and so you have to, you have to, it, it's hard to set aside time to write. Um, but on the other hand, um, and the, also the other part that's difficult is you're so much harder on yourself because you've read so much mediocre poetry mm-hmm. and, um, and bad poetry. And so when you write a poem yourself, you're like, no, nah, Kate. No, this is this is not good. And so, um, so I think in many ways it's difficult, but it also uh, allows you to challenge yourself to um, to write excellent work. And that's that's maybe what we all should be doing. Yeah. What, how I would have asked it, I'm curious. Is there a way that you free yourself from that, like self editor, like the editor part of your brain that's like, because because there is a way that you can't be self editing while you're writing and still be creative. So is the way that you like manage to turn that off and is it with like shitty first drafts and like knowing you're going to do that or is it, is it something different? Yeah. I mean, what I do is particularly with this book more than anything I've ever written is I just said to myself, I have to write this book. I'm going to, I, I, I thought of it in terms of like, I'm, I'm going down into a well and I'm just climbing, climbing, climbing down to a well and I'm going to write this book and if, if, if it doesn't work for anybody else, I'm, I need to write it. And so I, I just kept climbing into the well every, every day that I re- worked on the book and wrote my freaking heart out. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's, that's kind of what made it work for me. Yeah, well, this is a, people are saying this has been a riveting conversation. It has. It's been so fun talking to you, Kate. Uh, let's finish up with one last poem from the book to, to close out the interview. Um, I'm going to finish with the last poem in the book, and it starts on page 78, and it's called Stumbling Toward Grace. Um, So um, whenever I've talked about having been in the cult and everything and the sort of massive trauma of that, people always assume that um, because I seem to be just walking around the world that I've been to a lot of therapy. But somehow, because I ended up working as, as an independent publisher, I never really was able to afford therapy, sadly. Um, but I've written a few poems in which I'm talking to an imaginary therapist. So if, for those of you who have been in therapy and you listen to this poem, you might be saying to yourself, Kate, you've got it all wrong. That is not at all what therapy is like. Uh, but this is me talking to my imaginary therapist. 
stumbling toward grace? Or are you thinking of killing yourself? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Would you like to go on living? No one wants me to live. No one. Okay, my husband and children want me to live. No one else. Well, now that you mention it, I have 11 friends who want me to live. 11 is a good number. So you want to stay alive for the 11 people and your husband. And how many children do you have? Technically two. Why technically? I have two stepchildren who are adults. They may want me to live. But your children and husband definitely do. Absolutely. No doubt. I'd swear on it. Of course, sometimes my husband is annoyed with me, but he still wants me to live. Good to hear. He wouldn't want you to end your life. No, it would bum him out quite a bit. He'd cheer up after a few months, of course. He'd be out dating and he'd find someone easier to deal with. Most women are easier to deal with at first, but then we all turn out to be whiners. Of course. So you are going to live? Probably. Things are bad now, but they might get better. And in the meantime, two children, one husband who's only sometimes annoyed, and 11 friends. And you have a dog? Yes, a dog, a great dog, Jasper. I'd stay alive for the dog alone. That is good to hear. So what happened? Can we talk about it? We're supposed to listen and act wisely. I did neither. And then a number of people wanted me dead. I see. But they didn't actually come after me to kill you. No, they just wished me dead. What you want is what matters. I don't know what I want anymore. What did you do to annoy these people? To make them wish me dead? I wanted to be a defender instead I was a heckler. What would you like to do? I had this one life, to build the cathedral of the soul, to rebuild mine like a small chapel, a single flower, a bell, a boat, a slip of paper with one perfect poem, a singular line of prose, knees on the ground, planting a row of corn, a trembling ascent of a pyramid, a bird, a grape, a perfectly poured cup of tea. I have my life to work on this single thread. There is unrestrained stupidity and there is grace. In my dreams, I stumble toward grace. Yeah, beautiful poem. Great poem to end on. Um, that was the last poem in the book, um, Stumbling Toward Grace. And uh, the book was Little and Lee's Girl by Kate Gale. Thanks so much for being a guest, Kate. It was just so fun and interesting talking to you. Such important topics, too. Um, and great insight into Red Hen Press. So all of those things are really cool. Everybody loved it. Um, and I appreciate having you here. Thank you so much, Tim. I hope I see you in person sometime in 2022. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure we will. Yeah, talk to you soon, Kate. Thanks. Okay, great. Okay, bye. And that was Kate Gale. And uh, once again, her book is The Loneliest Girl, which is available from, um, from uh, what was it, the University of New Mexico Press. And you can find more, of course, at kategale.com, I believe is her website. Let me double check that. Um, yeah, kategale.com, just like it spells Kate. And then Gale is G-A-L-E. So find the book and more at kategale.com. And now we are going to take a really quick break and go to open lines. But we have um, the Poet Respond Poet for tomorrow here, too. So it's going to be a really quick break. Don't even go anywhere. I'm just going to make sure she's ready and and say goodbye to Kate. And then we will be right back in just a second. So here, one second. Yeah, and we're back. Like I said, um, we uh, we have Juliet B. Levine here. Um, she has the Poet Visits Me in Spring, which is her poem from, uh, it's going to be the Poet Respond poem tomorrow. And here she is, Julia B. Levine. Hey, Julia, how you doing? 
I'm great. How are you, Tim? I'm great. It's really good to see you. I think, um, I can't remember. I think when we published you, it was about a year and a half ago. I don't remember if we saw if you were on the show or not, but uh, welcome yeah. to the show either way. I think you were. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember exactly when it was because it was in response to January 6th. So you're right. It was about a year and a half ago. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, so what was the poem uh, for tomorrow about? So, um, well, it's about a lot of things, but it's primarily about um, the fact that I, I feel so helpless and terrible about what's going on in um, the Ukraine. And I always have this argument with myself about whether it really matters to write a poem or not. You know, um, I took this incredible class on Tesla Milos and, and he even has a line in there where he asks, you know, what, what is poetry that cannot save a nation? And um, so I found myself in that place and I've been out to visit this ranch where this um, little lamb was rejected by the mom and basically cast away to die. So, um, yeah, I made up a poet who came to visit me. <laughs> oh, so, so that's not a true story then. That's interesting. Um, well, let's hear the poem um, and then uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about it. Okay. So you want me to just read it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So as you said, it's called The Poet Visits Me in Spring. After the birds bed down, and the carpenter bees come out to work. We drink red wine on my porch. She says the moon is moving fast as a race car, though of course from here, we can't see it any better than we can see the faraway villagers drink from puddles, step over the dead fallen in their streets. The poet tells me a story about her terrible past, but my mind circles around that newborn lamb I saw on a ranch last week. I can't stop it. I keep seeing that little runt wobbling up, bleeding, tail wagging as she scents the you, only to be butted away again. And again, the heftier twin allowed the teat. And I'm thinking it was the lamb's hope that was hardest to see. How each time she rose up, she rose into the certainty that milk would fall like manna from the sheep's undercarriage, its dark and woolly sky. Now at dusk, the poet compliments my garden with its wild weeds and bolting kale. And of course she's right, it matters. These brief explosions of seed and the ripening of the petals into perfume, even that runt cast away to die while the living lamb walks with the ewe through fields of meadow barley and bleached sheep bones shaken out like salt. And of course the poet's baby that died in an accident too horrible to repeat. That matters too. The way the world can break the twinned lives of a soul too early so that only half stays here on earth while the other is set free. Though strung between them, there will be always a line troubled by their vacancy. Perhaps that is how a door like the moon opens in the poet, where the dead walk in, ask her to pick up her pen, I love how we both believe it matters what we think in a poem. Because outside the kingdom of the page, what can we do? How else might her little boy and that lamb find each other while the moon goes on speeding to that faraway country? How else pause the war for one night so the villagers might slip from their cellars into the glittered shatter of stars? Just one night, they've forgotten how it feels to stand under all this luminous silence. 
to look at the fine wool that for weeks now has fallen like snow over their dead to keep them warm. Yeah, just a beautiful poem. Um, That was The Poet Visits Me in Spring. And so I wanted to ask just about how a poem like that comes to be, because, you know, there's so little time in the Poets Respond world to to write a poem like that. And, And that's such a rich like layered and kind of thoughtful poem that, that moves through a lot of different topics we woven together. Um, how did the, the poem, like, what did you start with? Like what image did you start with and how did the poem develop just in the writing process? I was curious about that. Well, it's, it's funny you're asking me Tim. it's a little embarrassing, but um, I'm actually pretty terrible at writing these poets respond poems because it takes me so long. Mm-hmm. And so I actually had sent a couple in that you didn't take and I'm really glad you didn't because it took a long time to find the right um, technique to write this. Mm-hmm. I, I knew I had to write about that little lamb because it was just heartbreaking. And of course, the helplessness you feel watching a, a newborn animal be refused, the one thing that would save its life, is, is not, that unfa- it's not, it's not that different than what you feel learning and hearing about a war where all these innocent people are dying or being hurt. And so um, that those images, I just kept thinking, I don't get how they could possibly go together. And then I, and then I literally did have a friend over who talked about, if you could see the moon with a telescope, it, it, it moves really fast. You just can't tell from here. And that's what really helped me um, find a way to put those things together. But I, I also really appreciate you reject, rejecting the other ones because they really weren't very good. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm so glad we had this one. It's just a great poem. And um, I'm looking forward to sharing it with everybody tomorrow um, as the daily poem. Uh, Julie, thanks so much for joining us again. It's a pleasure to see you again. And, uh, and thanks for sharing this poem. You too, Tim. Thank you so much. Yep, take Bye-bye. Care. Bye. Once again, that was uh, Julia Levine uh, with uh, the poem was The Poets Visit Me in Spring or the poet visits me in spring. And, um, and there's even more to that story since in the time. I mean, the, the horrific treatment of the, the civilians in Ukraine, I've seen a couple of really bad stories the last couple of days, um, even since this poem was submitted on, on Friday night. Um, so that's going to be the daily poem tomorrow. And now we're going to open up the open lines. And um, let me get the link for everybody. I'm going to put the link in the show notes, or in the, uh, in the chat window, I should say. So, um, here is the link if you would like to join. And as always, you only need to join. Don't join unless you want to share a poem. It's all about sharing poems. If you don't want to share a poem and just want to listen to other poems, stay right where you are and just watch the show here. But if you would like to listen to poems, um, or if you'd like to share poems, I should say, if you have a news poem you'd like to share, if you have the prompt poem, we already mentioned the prompt is to write a poem uh, based on or about aphorisms. If you'd like to do that, um, share that or you can just share a poem you published recently and are happy with it would like to to share like a link to the website we can show that you can read it on stream whatever you'd like to do find the zoom link in either the facebook or youtube chat windows and then join me there um and i'm going to take a quick break people are starting to trickle in i'm going to get everything set up and we will be right back And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Now the open lines. Um, I don't really have anywhere to go. It's an unusual time. I don't. A lot of times I have um, our softball league game at, right after the rattlecast, um, but this time I don't. So I'm in no rush. Um, you know, Josephina, our daughter, has a uh, 
rehearsal for her theater thing coming up that I don't have to go to. So I got all day. So let's get to a lot of poets and um, let's try to find the first time callers first. Let's go to um, Tanisha Carr right now. Hi. Hey, Tanisha. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. And I think this is the first time you've joined, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and where are you calling from? Uh, San Francisco. Uh, very cool. I'm so glad you could join us. Um, and I see your poem here. Um, this is um, uh, Life Beyond Lightbreak. Do you want to say anything about it before you read? Um. Not necessarily. Okay. Well, uh, well, go ahead whenever you want. I have it ready for everybody. Um, and and if you're first time, I, I should tell everybody read your own copy because I'm sharing the screen, but for YouTube and Facebook, and you can't see it. And then afterward, you can go back to YouTube or Facebook or whatever to watch the rest of the show if you want. So, okay. So go ahead uh, whenever you're ready. I'll put this up. Okay. Sure. Um, life beyond light break. I walk into the indifference of suffering a scalding windowless room of crippling rumination. Two doors opposite enter and exit. You can make it through if you recall the hope of light sprinkling through tree leaves or the weightlessness of wind tickling hair wild. Surviving that room means overcoming your indifference to your own suffering owning and living by your own self-worth, learning to deserve your own worry. And the light cracks, the roof falls, you see the exit door, but even in light break, you must leave foot after foot through the door. You must end your indifference to other suffering. Yeah, beautiful poem. Yeah, thanks so much for that. It was Life Beyond Light Break. And then you have another one too. Do you want to read the other one? It's short. Um, It's in response to um, just the endless amounts of war that we're seeing. Um, It's called Invasion. When bombs singe birds to lawns now dead and buildings crumble into rubble, borderlines suddenly glow visible with shell fire, unsettling space. People escape land, communities take refuge in colonizer landscapes if they make it, fighting for dignity on imperial soil. Isn't a colonel always colonizing even when they never leave home? Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing those two beautiful poems. I really appreciate it. I'm glad you could call in and hope you can call in again soon. For sure. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Yeah, and that was um, that was um, Tanisha Carr um, with two poems there. And let's go to um, let's go to Carla Schwartz at CB ninety nine videos. She hasn't been on live in a very long time because the usual time doesn't work for her. Um, so it'll be good to get Carla on. Hey, Carla, you there? I am here. <laughs> hey, Carla, it's great to see you. Oh, I love the background too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, remember you had a couple of weeks ago. You had somebody who said do QR codes. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> what what does few, that take you to? It would take you to pre-order my new book. <laughs> oh, that is very cool. So, so what's your new book? Congratulations on that. Um, it's called Signs of Marriage, mm-hmm. uh, and it's from F- Finishing Line Press. I'll, oh, very cool. I'll, yeah, congratulations. 
Thank you. Thank you. And, um, and uh, so um, let's see. I, um, I sent it, you a prompt poem for last week that didn't even get to. Yeah. And I also just emailed you a poem that's in this new manuscript. So I could read that one. Yeah, I think we have time for both. I don't think we're any rush. Uh, we're one of those shows where we're just going to go as long as anybody is still here, I think. So feel free and, and we'll oh, just cool. have fun with it. Cool. So um, I will start with the poem that is in the manuscript, uh, which is coming out in June from Finishing Line Press, and it's called Raspberries. Okay. And I just emailed that to yep, you. I, I have didn't... it right here. Okay, great. As a man and a woman meet in the afternoon, safely distanced across the raspberry patch, they pick and taste, melt berry to tongue, lean in and stretch a laden branch some distance into the heart of the stand. As they pick, they move round and round the berries, a berry dance. You know how it is with raspberries. You must circle more than once to find what you've missed the first go round. They speak not the heaviness of the years lost between them began around some other patch of fruit, not of their diaspora, not their chance reunion. No, hell no. Raspberries, only raspberries, I tell you, these two. They swallow the drooplets, ignore the scratches between fingers. They pinch the flavor. Oh, great poem. And so um, where is it that um, the best place people could go to find that book? Uh, from um, Finishing Line I Press? can put a link in the chat, which I guess I will do. Yeah, perfect. After. Yeah, you should do that. Yeah. And otherwise I could just, you know, disappear <laughs> just for, a for a second. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, and if you do, the, what, the great thing about this, and I put it on some cards, is that um, th to hand out if I went to a reading, is that um, you uh, can give somebody a card and they put their phone camera in front of it and it goes right to buy the book, which is yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. You know? Did you think about that before? Um, was it Kim Stafford? I think it was, yeah, Kim Stafford. I think Stafford. it was Kim Stafford, yes. And... Um, uh, you know, I, I, these postcards that this press gives you to, they give you an idea for these postcards to send out, you know, and I'm like mailing a postcard that has this link printed on it. It's just never going to work. Mm -hmm. Right. And I do a lot of email, you know, I'll do an email thing and, and put links in places. But I thought if I am going to go to a physical reading and have something to hand somebody, this is what I want to hand somebody, you know, cause then, you know, you, you catch them right there. Yeah, very cool. Uh, I'm even thinking somebody has, um, I can't remember who, has this little poetry machine where it prints poems on like um, receipts, like that kind of paper. And just even having like a little thing with a poem on it and that QR code would be so cool. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, then you could have like your own little page for that. Yeah, but, that'd be perfect. I think I have to yeah. look into that, get one and, of those ju machines. Just know <laughs> mm -hmm. that Google Chrome you can find a QR code for any any page just using Google Chrome. If you if you look on the share, there's like a little share mm -hmm. yeah. in the mm -hmm. URL thing. One of them is share as a as a QR code. Yeah, I mean all a QR code is is a different language. Like it's exactly. just a non-binary. I can't I don't know how it, can't remember how it works, but it's just it, it's the words yeah. are in there. It's just in a way we can't read. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. So so let's do the other poem. poem. This is a is, yeah. This is a spotted salamander. I have. I put that on the screen. There's a picture of a, a spotted yeah. salamander. 
Yeah, it's from last week's uh, prompt of uh, a woman uh, walking down the dirt road. Oh, that's night. right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So this is called Elusive. A woman at night walks a dirt road. Tonight, a mist suspended in air. Her flashlight illuminates the pebbles and stones. Droplets settle in front of her. Tonight, a mist suspended in air, but it hasn't rained enough to force droplets to settle in front of her. Then what else creeps and bubbles the dark? It hasn't rained enough to force the spotted salamanders from underground to creep and bubble in the dark, though frogs break quiet with belching sounds. The spotted salamanders still underground as the woman stops beside a vernal pond. The frogs break quiet with belching sounds and the woman this night along a dirt road. Oh, At the woman. At the woman, sorry. Yeah. I, I love that. I love all the slant rhymes. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. That's oh, great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I put that into a pantomime. Yeah, very cool. Thank you. And, and have a great night. Good to see you. And oh. I think we're gonna what we're going to do, I think, because most people wanted the morning show. I think we're going to just have morning show still, but flex more out to different times just for fun. So so um, every once in a while, at least maybe once a month, we'll try to have a different time. Maybe that's what I'm going to do. So hopefully we'll see you. I hope to, too. Bye-bye. Okay, Thank care. you. Bye. That was Carla Schwartz, also known as CB99 Videos, with Two Poems Elusive and um, the Raspberry one. I can't remember the exact title, but but check out. And Carla's going to leave a link for her uh, books in the chat windows. So let's go next to another poet that doesn't get on very much at the morning time, uh, Angela Gartner. Hi. Hey, nice. Angela. How are you doing today? Good. <laughs> oh, there you okay. are. Yeah. Hello. Good yep. to see you. Yeah. So how are you good doing? Good to see you. Good. Well, good. So what do you have that you would like to share? Well, if, if it's okay if I share the two, they, these are, t- I, I went ahead and emailed it to you. Yeah, I have the viewfinder and the nail job, right? Yeah, these are two um, Poets Respond poems. Um, both are from the, um, hold on, I'm sorry. Um, both are actually, okay, here we go. <laughs> I have to open it myself. All right. Um, both are about the Ukraine, uh, Russian, well, the Russian-Ukraine war. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is really kind of my perspective as um, kind of a journalist and, you know, talking about, you know, people who are photojournalists, um, who are, um, you know, we're just seeing some horrific scenes mm-hmm. from this. And it's because of the work of photojournalists and it's so important. So, the viewfinder is really yeah, and, and about so dangerous that too. perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine what they're going through, but I'm so thankful that we, you know, I mean, they're terrible things are happening, but, you know, we need to see this and, you know, their work is very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same, it reminds me of um, the firefighting journalists or the fire journalists, because we don't know anything about like our towns evacuated and, and they're driving around taking pictures and like your house is still here. Like this is where actually where the fire is and things like that. And they're risking their lives doing it because people have died. Um, yeah. It's the same kind of thing. It's a really important job. So let's hear this. The viewfinder. The viewfinder. In the little window, The young boy stood next to his mother, shaking from the cold and the loud sirens 
where planes drop bombs. In the little window, a soldier with his gun rides in an armored car past the town's mass grave where the rat bodies are waiting to be recognized. In the little window, you are in a damaged building where the walls have cracks, blankets and teddy bears are next to four infants swaddled on the ground. In the little window, you find in the crowd a family running with full bags, carrying their kids, a dog at their side, a stroller is left behind. In the little window, your eyelash reflects in the glass, just a flicker of you in the mirror of the camera lens before you get back to the action. Yeah, it's Angel Gardner with the viewfinder. I love the repetition there. It works really well. And then the nail job, it could, it, do you want to explain that too? Yeah, um... I just, you know, again, you know, looking at, you know, the photos, um, there was one week where you just saw so many hands, hands in the dirt of people who were, you know, were had been killed. And, you know, you see their nails. And lately, I, I mean, I'm, I've been into painting my nails lately of different colors and, you know, having fun. But, you know, it's just, you know, to see those hands and, um, there was one story where a manicurist actually recognized hmm. someone who she works with, um, who, um, you know, they were working on a, a, like a kind of a fashion, fashion thing. And, um, she recognized her hands as someone who was killed. Like she recognized her nail job. Um, so it's, it's like just the little things, you know, the little details in these, um, horrific photos that we're seeing. And I just, I couldn't help get that out of my mind. This, you know, this woman, you know, polished nails, you know, so excited for the future. And, you know, she was one of the people who was laying on the ground, um, coming home from work and killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Such heartbreaking story. Um, go ahead. Uh, whenever you're ready with a nail job. The nail job. I see hands bent to a claw where the blood river flow drains underneath decay. It's her fingers in the mud, red acrylics made into a fist, filed in shape amidst stones. The curly hairs on his back, long nails, stained cuticles, stiff against tied white cloth. Light purple plates don't breathe on an almost buried woman in a dirt pile for the morning. I look to mine, slaply polished. My digits are clicking on keys for the hands of the lifeless. Yeah, great poem. Thanks for sharing both of those, Angela. And always a pleasure to see you. Always a pleasure. Have a great day. Yep, you Thank too. you. Bye. Bye. It's Angela Gardner with uh, The Nail Job and The Viewfinder. And let's go next to uh, Andrew Tradinic with um, uh, Andrew at a reasonable hour, perhaps. What, what time is it there now, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, um, uh, it's 9 a.m. Like, it's just you know, daytime and it's, it's my school, it's my school vacation. So, oh, you know, for... I'm not actually at work. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. It's a such. much better time for sure <laughs> than, uh, than like 4am or whenever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of is. Uh, and, and none of your, you know, all your suggested times for mm -hmm. the alternatives, none of them really work for me because, you know, work and so, yeah, so yeah, you know, whatever yeah. it's, it's really, it's great. I, I feel very, um, privilege to just be able to connect to you guys at all so it's great yeah well we're glad to have you and i'm um, glad to have you at a reasonable time for once um so what i think you have two poems here a short one and a long yeah 
Yeah, I put a. It's it, they're both pretty short, but mm-hmm. the, a good man who can find is the is is the prompt poem. Basically, um, I just it's just got a little footnote explaining what all the aphorisms are sort of were. Interesting. Um, yeah. Do you want to explain now, or do you want to just read it and let? Yeah, us... yeah. So okay. basically, I I was just intrigued by a story that I saw somewhere. Someone was reposting online that a, a mega church in the US had opened up its car park. Uh, for overnight parking for homeless people. And and then I realized when you Google it, there's a lot of places doing that. They're oh, just wow. going, mm-hmm. you know, like homeless people living in cars. Um, is that know, something that, that you have in Australia going on right now? Or is that a little like bit? A- not not mm-hmm. as, I don't think as seriously as, as in the US, but certainly it's happening because house prices are insane here. It's utterly insane. Yeah, for um, us, and- it's uh, we're like in the middle of nowhere, kind of relative to Southern California. And for the first time, there's there are homeless people in the parking lots, which is, I mean, yeah. in the middle of the high desert where it's going to be like 110 degrees. I mean, it's kind of frightening. I, I don't know what. Yeah. Hopefully, I don't know what we're going to do as it gets warmer out. And it's increasingly happening with you know we've we've had lots of floods in in our. Uh, and, and so people are displaced, and mm. yeah, so yeah, these things yeah. Are, are very real, even if they're not obvious to us in suburbia, sort of straight away. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, so I just saw that story, and then um, uh, and then it just somehow came together with a, a couple of uh, the aphorisms of life short, art long, crisis fleeting, experience perilous, decision difficult from Hippocrates, which apparently is like one of the first aphorisms. Oh, really? Hmm. According to you know Professor Google, um, and um, Bruce Coburn album, Life Short, Call Now. Um, so I just brought those all together, and with the uh, turning around a biblical reference, the the good woman who can find from Proverbs, uh, I turned it around a bit. So yeah, so I'll just read it. It's, it's quite short, and it actually turned out to be like a high bun, actually, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. accidentally, like a mini high yeah. bun, sort of, kind of. Um, yeah, so a good man who can find a mega church is repurposed as a field hospital when the pastor invites homeless people to park securely overnight and then cooks breakfast. Life short, call now, art long, crisis fleeting, experience perilous, decision difficult. Yeah, very, very, very tonkish or something. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing that one. And then the other one, what was the other one? Oh, it's just a tiny little hive uh, psyku. Ah. I think I think it's a psyku. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I'm new to this stuff. Um, uh, I read a story about moths. Apparently, butterflies do the daytime pollination. Moths do the nighttime. Oh, interesting. Uh, and that's why that's hmm. why lots of flowers put out heavy perfume at night. Oh, because they're yeah, that would <clears> make <throat> sense. Interesting. I had so, no idea. You learned something every so day. I read that. <laughs> I read that somewhere. Or heard about it somewhere, and then when I googled it later to find an actual story, um, the, the the moths take the night shift. I'd written the moths, moths take the night shift, but it was already in the journalist's oh, wow. you know headline. Uh-huh. So anyway, it's just very moths take the night shift. The perfume of flowers. Who knew? Yeah, I don't know how moths. I've lasted <laughs> lasted that long without knowing that. Who knew? Yeah. Exactly. Who knew? So, um, thanks, Tim, and thanks, uh, thanks for the great uh, poetry and and the guest today too. It was it was great to hear from Kate. Really. Yeah, it really very was. Powerful, yeah, yeah, very interesting, interesting conversation tale, with her. Mm-hmm. Powerful tale of of a life uh, 
amazing life. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Like she should have a movie written about her. I think I'd be, I'd watch it. Um, anyway, yeah. Take, thanks again, uh, Andrew. Take care. Thank you. Okay, let's go uh, next to let's go to Mike Bales next. Hello, new time. Yeah, hey Mike. Just temporary though. Just uh, just because oh, yeah. of the, the holiday, and then I think we're not going to do a so Mother's Day. Go. So the eighth. Oops, hang on a second. Let me uh, oh, let me mute Andrew. There we go. Okay, yeah. So go ahead, Mike. Sorry about that. Um, oh yeah. So I was by... saying. Sorry, I was saying just to finish the sentence is that I think Mother's Day we're going to be doing um, a show not on Mother's Day in the same way. So maybe once a month or so we'll do a different time. Yeah, I'm going to eventually have to get work, and I hope it doesn't interfere with too much. I'm a laid off guy from a community college bookstore oh yeah employment's now saying you gotta look and i think i've got to figure out how to get by when i love the job when you work like a month and you're laid off like three months that kind of thing mm-hmm. is that but the flagger nice job? when i do it is that the flagger Pardon? job or the bookstore you mean well the flagger thing i've been done with about three years ago oh, kind of, oh, okay uh, um it's a bad, the flagger job's the best thing that ever happened to my writing, all those things I've seen. Mm-hmm. But the bookstore is great. You know, I'm a book person. Uh, this is great. I think um, the featured guests and just the co-readers with me, I think, pushed me to be about the best I can be, you know, mm-hmm. and I hope to get better and better than my current best. Um, well, it's it's this, fun watching it. Yeah. So is this a Poet Respond it is okay i was combining two things the ongoing war which i don't think any of us can get it out of our minds Mm -hmm. and pink floyd reuniting for one song a friend told me about and i googled you can't hear the whole song there's a guy singing in a town square in ukraine and he actually worked with pink floyd about 40 years ago on one of their albums oh wow and they heard it. I haven't heard the whole thing. I think you have to purchase it. It's a fundraiser for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But um, um, they heard it, and uh, the remaining members of Pink Floyd and the people who've worked with them for the last 40 years laid instruments over it. So, And the song is called Hey, Hey, Resistance. Interesting, And yeah. this poem's called... And I've been telling everyone last week, driving crazy, saying Pink Floyd reunited. (laughs) Um, That's a great idea for a fundraiser, I got to say. That's really good. So this is called Refrains of Resistance. A villager in the square dances. His song rises into the air. And in a studio, riffs are overdubbed. A guitar cries out to the heartfelt rhythm of bass and drums. A rock group reunites after a 20-year absence. The song rises. The chorus cannot be stilled after all the years. The group cannot stay silent to the world around them. And the sound rises above their differences, above the thunder of cannons and guns, above the cadence of 10,000 troops, above the evil of a rogue nation, above and measures of freedom rise above the rubble. Speaking for villagers, the lyrics proclaim what's ours is ours. One man sings, he bleeds to for measures to the beat of peace and justice. The message resonates, unity proclaimed, humanity of all, all humanity, villagers at heart, and a world grown small. 
Yeah, great poem. I love the rhythm of that. Really a lot of energy. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, take care. It was Mike Bales with uh, Refrains of Resistance. Okay, let's go to um, let's go to Guy Chambers. Hi, Kim. Hey, Guy. How you doing? Not too bad. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's a fun day for poetry. A fun day yeah. Monday. Yeah, that's what you should call it. Yeah, yeah. I would say like uh, like a compliment, uh, Wes Westheimer there. The uh, poem you had to start the show. I thought that was really good. I was I can say is wow. Yeah. It took even the title just took it right away. So it was well done. Very good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so I've written some uh, for the uh, prompt here. I decided to write some one-liners, and I wrote a whole bunch. I just these are the ones I came up with there. So, because I'm so busy with uh, a couple of writing groups up here, because it's a poetry month, so I'm writing up. They got uh, 30 poems in 30 days. So oh wow! Write a poem yeah, every day, I never so. I never done that, but I always want yeah. to. Maybe when the kids uh, are grown. <laughs> yeah, I did that. Yeah. I did that last year with one the, one of the group, and I, I was with another group, so I got doing so almost doing two a day. So it's fun, anyhow. Mm-hmm. But here's what I came up with: some of the prompt ones here. Okay. Hey, good insight keeps everything right. Lies will keep everything awry. Laughter is organic medicine. Our heart goes a long way. Dreams are abundant, just need to be grass. Time is a key to open doors. Words just said, eyes can hide what was indeed said. Oh, that Thank was you. really, yeah, that was really good. I mean, if you told me that any of those were famous, you know, from Plato or something, I would completely believe them. Those are great. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thanks for sharing those guys. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah. Have take care. Day. It was Guy Chambers with some aphorisms. I think my, um, I like laughter is organic medicine, but a heart goes a long way is great too. Um, let's go to David Tenson. I think he's a first time caller. I am. Thanks for having yeah. me. Hey, David, how you doing? Good. Very uh, nice from setup Australia, you have there, you by could... the way. Oh, no, Thank you. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yep. A great mic and a great lighting, much better than me. <laughs> yeah, I do I do quite a bit of teaching and stuff, so uh, this, is my, this is my little jam here. Very Thank good. you. Well, it looks professional. Um, so what do you have that you'd like to share? Let me try to find... Uh, did you email something in? I did not. Uh, uh, I forgot I to say to that. Read. Yeah. So if you want, yeah, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I would have. Uh, I would have done that. I'm so sorry. No, it's no problem. Um, you know, I just forgot to say it. Um, just email to openmike at rattle dot com, and I'll swing back to you so people can see the poem as they, as you read it. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. I can. Uh, I can always just uh, send you the the link to the. Yeah. Perfect. It, yeah. yeah. So once you do that, I'll do someone else, and I'll come back to you. All right. Here okay. we go. So let's instead go to uh, David Cook, who hasn't been on in a while. Hey, David, how you doing? Uh, hi, how are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah, good to see you. So what do you have that you'd like to share? Um, I, I sent it once and then I sent it again. Um, it's the uh, Good for the Perfect poem. Yeah, I have it right here. And I have the newest one, so don't worry about that. Oh, good, good. Um, yeah, this uh, this poem I... I uh, it was one of the first poems I wrote after I was divorced. And um, it's basically just a, a poem about losing your spouse to the validation of uh, 
work and mm-hmm. um and so i just tried to try to kind of animate work in the in this creature this kind of celestial being of angel and to have it kind of be a little bit biblical but it also it basically came out of um the uh, there's this myth when you're born mm-hmm. um where if you uh you still remember your pre-existence and until the devil comes in and puts his finger on your lip and shushes you and then you forget everything before you're born hmm. yeah i thought that was a kind of a neat yeah i've never heard that uh, before that's a, that's a really cool story good for the perfect good for her to have a friend she loved to dance let her dance who was i to pass against this angel at work befriending her flying with her at home i'd hold her hand and rub the loose rib under her shoulder i shook this angel's hand its loose grip kept my thumb on its knuckles my finger touched the gravel i felt embedded in its palm its hand on her waist moved her forward its hummingbird eyes looked back saying trust me as far as you trust her spine like knuckles of a fist her ribs clenched over her heart she danced in heels she'd hesitate to wear with me it circled dragging its finger along her just the tips of its fingers spun her around the funnel of its chest i was assured of their platony when it held her hand saying i'm like a girlfriend with the breathy drawl of a confederate mother wings twitching with the cadence of its voice i could see they were talking saying under your wing if not for you i thanked it for that i thanked god for it legs long like contrails blood on its knees perfect in its movement timing the drop of its hand upper cuss on her back unclasping her chest as she spun bringing her in pressing its thumbs to her temples opening her eyes like luggage lifting her like expectations revealing all her marital truths then placing its finger on the pleat of her lip she forgot about me uh, thanks for sharing that david i can hear the the emotion and i appreciate it that was a good Thank for you. the perfect david cook thanks so much david have a good day. Yeah, you too. Okay, let's swing back. Let me see if we got the email yet. So this is The Wrestle. Yeah, so this is from a book I published a couple of years ago. It did did well. It's called oh, Wrestle. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. And, um, and uh, what is this, uh, this art that goes with it? The art on the, on the blog image mm-hmm. is, um, it's, it's really uh, a wrestle of Jacob with mm-hmm. God. So um, I wrote this on the other side of coming out of a whole stack of burnout and um, religious deconstruction and a whole lot of uh, things. It's largely the theme of the of the book of the same name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this sort of leans into that story of what it's like to wrestle with God because I, you know, some people are afraid of it, mm-hmm. don't want to, don't want to ask questions. But for me, I at the end figured I couldn't, you can't get any closer mm-hmm. than, uh, than if you wrestle. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, why don't you yeah. go ahead and read it? Yeah. Thank you. 
I found you beyond the why, far from the why not, worlds from the why me. You held a space for me beyond answers to questions my pain had as if you knew information was never going to heal or resolve or fix my suffering. Instead, you agreed to wrestle through many nights, never letting go, always with me just like you promised. Refusing to surrender, I eventually realized that wrestling with God was not a crime, that I was, in fact, being held, being healed, being transformed by finding you beyond answers, being blessed by holding on to you in my doubt and frustration and never letting go. And you never let go. And you overcame me in the end. And we both won. Interesting. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. The Wrestle. That's from the book, The Wrestle. And they can find that at uh, davidtenson.com. That's David T-E-N-S-E-N. Or Amazon. Amazon yeah. anywhere. So, so um, I don't know. Wrestling with God. Uh, what it, was it if he could, like, in a nutshell? I mean, I don't know. Uh, what did you find? I mean, what was your, your sort of well, I found, your conclusion? Yeah, I think I've, what I found was often in first half of life, if you grow up in a in a religious environment, for me, it was Christian in my teens. Um, you're you're told to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. You're told that things would work a particular way. You're told to not really question God, just believe, just believe. And um, and so, I mean, there are other poems in the book, but it kind of unpacks this whole idea of no, you you should doubt and you should ask questions and you should wrestle and don't distance God from from your struggle. Actually understand that god's in that all the time so for me i discovered he's for god god in in a trinitarian sense was far more committed to me than i mm-hmm. am to the to the godhead and kinder and more inclusive and this was a joy actually to, to wrestle in the judah in the judeo system you do wrestle with god that's that's why this 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 story appears again and again in scriptures but uh but quite often in evangelical those kind of circles it's not you you just turn up you believe you do the right things and and god should do the right thing by you um but you can go through bankruptcy a whole lot of stuff and Mm -hmm. you figure out uh the the kind of way that i think god should be kind of has to die. And for me, this is another Easter theme poem mm-hmm. uh, it, it, about God disappears and he disappoints and then God turns up in a different kind of way. Uh, and that's can't be prescribed. That's mm-hmm. what I've discovered. It can't yeah. be prescribed. Well, it's always interesting there. I don't know if it was um, Chris Anderson I was talking about this with, um, who we might have on one of those on Monday shows I mentioned because he's a Catholic deacon. And um, so we couldn't do Sunday morning, I'm sure. But... Um, but about this thing, I can't remember the phrase, but there's a phrase of it when you you go to seminary school and then your mind like explodes <laughs> and like so many people drop out because they go from, you know, believing it as doctrine to questioning everything. And it's such a radical transformation when you actually go to seminary school. I can't remember the phrase for that, but there's something that happens and very common, I guess, for people to drop out. Yeah. And there's a, a kind of a, a trend uh, that's happening through a lot of the evangelical or mainstream churches of, of deconstruction. So people that have been in it for quite some time, all of a sudden, I mean, it's something I think happens in a natural sort of maturation in, in any spiritual discipline as you begin to go, okay, uh, that hasn't worked out like I thought. And 
it you you start gaining and giving yourself courage and permission mm -hmm. to ask questions and sometimes it happens at semin seminary and sometimes it happens at the cemetery yeah <laughs> that's great well speaking of aphorisms that was great well thanks for uh, for joining us david thanks for great, your time great to meet you hope you can call in again sometime soon i All think right. uh, the regular show time is uh, impossible in australia but unless you're a crazy morning person but otherwise uh, maybe we'll catch you on another alternative time day all right. Thanks, Tim. Yep, bye -bye. Take care. Bye. Yeah, there was David Tenson. Of course, davidtenson.com, T-E-N-S-E-N.com to find more of his work. Let's go uh, to uh, now Dick Westheimer, finally, the very patient Dick, who's been here for uh, two hours and 40 minutes. Hey, Dick, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. I, I was just enjoying poems. There are so many good ones today. Yeah, it's a, a fun episode. I, I like it. Yeah. Um, uh, I sent you a note in chat. I think uh, Sharon Ferrante has sent in a poem by email. She, I saw yeah, I'm going to try to p see who I can catch with. Uh, oh, okay. With I just wanted to let go. You know. and we haven't done uh, Carlton Johnson and Ted Guevara have poems. Um, uh, Potter has a haiku. So I'm going to try to catch a couple of them. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get everyone, but I'm going to try. Yeah. Uh, can I take a moment to finish up a couple comments about yeah. the, uh, um, so first of all, it started as an aphorism poem, the original about don't fly too close to the sun. Oh, and yeah, I had yeah. that sitting on my desktop and mm -hmm. then I read the fern story. Um, and I hope I didn't, uh, upset you too much with Ariadne's string. As the, <laughs> I, you know, I looked it up. I always do. And I read about it and now I don't, I don't remember anything. I yeah. You know, well, I don't know. For some reason the, the mythology stuff just will not stick in my head, no matter how yeah, many times I'm, I read about it. I'm, I'm the same way. I have the top level ones, but when I read down into it, I found that was a more compelling metaphor mm -hmm. than, uh, than the other. Uh, the other thing I wanted to share about that one is that, the poem became about my relationship with my daughter and understanding mm -hmm. her world in a better way. Yeah. You know, it's not, it didn't, and that was sort of the magic of it is that that's the thing that happened at 1230 at night on my time Saturday morning uh -huh. um, as, as the poem was just sort of not working, not working. And then that's, that's what emerged from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was the, the key to it really, that it was, it became that personal level and another layer to it all too, on top of um, the story itself. Mm -hmm. and, and the other thing is the metaphor that caught the most responses from people was the dandelion. Mm -hmm. And, uh, which was another sort of serendipitous one in that I was re you know, I was thinking about the dandelions and I looked that they came to be 30 million years ago. Oh, wow. And so it's like, <laughs> and you know, I was thinking that, you know, the non-binary queerness has been in the world as long as there've been people, mm -hmm. you know, before people made time and that just fit up with, yeah. the, mm -hmm. with the dandelion piece. So it all fell together very late at night. I'm glad you have the late deadline. Well, that's great. It worked fine. Well, I don't really read them until the Saturday morning for me anyway. So, um, yeah, uh, good stuff. Well, I did send in another poets respond poem mm -hmm. as, as I've been doing one of the things and sorry to lard up your inboxes. I'm just not going to let Ukraine poems take the, the route that, social media is taken, which mm -hmm. is the war is over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, just because more people are dying, more people are suffering, the thing is worse and worse. It has sort of uh, dropped from the attention of the of the of the Twitter sphere in large part. 
Yeah, well, not poets. I mean, we're still getting a lot of poets about it. And even uh, tomorrow's poem is about it, too. You know, I'm trying to find poems that are, like, doing it in oblique ways and stuff because we've done, I think we've had, like, a dozen poems on it. Yeah. Um, but but poets are definitely still engaged with that story. But it's true. I don't see much about it on social media, I mean, at all anymore. Oh, well, um, so this one was called The Search for War and Peace. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I heard the Pope's... Uh, Palm Sunday sort of call for peace and started. I I don't know Palm Sunday. You know, to me, it falls in the world of of mythology. I read about it every year and then I I forget it mm-hmm. because it's not my you know so cultural currency. And one of the things I found out was that Palm Sunday for um, Eastern Ukrainian um, and Russian uh, Christians is the next week. It's not even the same week. So oh, there's really? hmm. like this, this sort of disconnect. And that's what prompted uh, this poem to unfold. So the search for war and peace. It's Palm Sunday and the Pope of Rome calls for peace. The April air smells like potentiality, like new mown grass, like just dug soil, like fresh gunpowder. Our kitty stalks prey in the front yard, catches a rabbit. Yesterday it was a snake. And I think this is a metaphor because Bible story in Bible stories, snakes make snakes are more sinister than bunnies. The same Bible said Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, triumphant. But I suspect the creature was confounded by the tangle of palm fronds and ragged coats laid at his feet. He did not care that the rabble acclaimed his rider a king, just that the stench and shouts of the crowd were too much, that he craved the craziness to cease, yearned to graze, to be relieved of his burden, which may be a metaphor too, because his burden was the Prince of Peace. The Pope did not pray for the donkey, neither did he pray for the bunny or cat, though peace between cat and rabbit would be a good thing. Don't raid our garden for carrots and peas, dear Leopardite. You, the queen of breeding, and you, cat, stop being a cat. Just stop. This is the message of the Pope of Rome, who does not mention that declawed cats are more likely to bite, that the venom of snakes can raise the dead, that rabbit meat was prized by monks during Lent, that the word for peace in Ukrainian is mir, that the word for peace in Russian is mir, that Google searches for war are five times that of searches for peace. Yeah, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. Always a pleasure. Great poems yeah. all around, as always. And it's cool to have you at the beginning and the end of the show, too. Stan, appreciate it. Yep. Bye-bye. It was uh, Richard Westheimer with uh, The Search for War and Peace. Yeah, there's just there's a there's a whole bunch of people left, and I'm not gonna get to everybody. But next week we'll get to, we can do poems that we missed this week, um, so don't worry about that. I'm just gonna really quickly go to our um, our uh, prop poems, and Megan didn't have one this week, and mine is short, so we'll be short, uh, and that'll be good. So once again, the uh, the prompt. Um, an afor- aphorism is a concise statement that contains a bit of wisdom or wit about life, such as if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or honesty is the best policy. Write a poem that is either based on an aphorism or contains one or more aphorisms. And so this was my very short poem. It's been a very busy week. This is the two busy times of me for a year, or early April in, in like September, um, the same time 
um, getting the issues together and the contests. Like we just announced the winners of the Rattle Chatbook Prize and things like that. Plus the taxes. Man, it's been a bear of a week, but it's done. But I gave myself a break and wrote just a short poem um, in the kind of, you know, Mike White or Wendy Vidalock or Kay Ryan type style. And here it is. This is based on the um, Frederick Nietzsche quote or aphorism, some are born posthumously. And of course, Nietzsche was talking about um, how no one will understand his work until after he's dead, is what he was basically saying. Um, but Nietzsche is just a walking aphorism machine, and all his books are like nothing but aphorisms. So I opened up one of them. Um, I can't remember which one this is from. And just read a couple, read through and, and picked one. And this was uh, our short little poem based on an aphorism. Some are born posthumously, Friedrich Nietzsche. Some are born posthumously, but you were born on the day of your birth. You were purple, but briefly, darker in shade and deeper in worth than all of this ball that we sweetly call earth. There's a little rhymy, intense short poem. And now the Saiku for this week um, is based on this article by, um, it's from the, uh, well, it's from the uh, American Psychological Journal the American Psychological Journal, and uh, it is right here, and it says, um, uh, lies that might eventually come true seem less ethical. And what they did is they and basically made, made people, um, they gave them surveys about how unethical a lie was and whether or not they primed them by thinking about how it might end up coming true at some point. Uh, made the people more likely to say that it was ethical. And so there's implications here for social media and um, and and it's just the way that, that false information spreads around. Like we think, well, it's not really true, but it kind of might be true eventually, or, or maybe we'll find out that it really is true. Then we're much easier to spread lies that way. And um, at the same time, there was another article that I happened to read uh, that was from Market Watch. This is kind of a poet response haiku. Um, and this is a, a, a sarcastic poem or a sarcastic story from uh, Market Watch. And uh, at first, it took me a while to realize it actually was sarcastic. But, um, oops, where'd it go? There we go. This is Millennials Have Solved the Retirement Crisis. And basically, they're saying that millennials don't think they have to invest in anything because they're investing in crypto instead. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that's going to work pretty well. <laughs> And um, so here is my Saiku really quick just to close out the show. And I, I put a picture of our own uh, backyard in there as well. So here is uh, the Saiku. Early spring, another craze of tulips buying crypto. Early spring, another craze of tulips buying crypto. That is the Saiku for the week. Looking back at the tulip bulb craze or tulip bulb mania, if you don't know, that's uh, uh, back. It's one of the first... Um, market bubbles and mercantilism. Uh, when was that? I think 1600s. Um, right after, you know, once trade got going, they started uh, having tulip bulbs were a symbol of status. So people kept buying these tulip bulbs in exotic colors. And the price for tulip bulbs just rocketed out of control. And people made tons of money getting rich just buying tulips. And then, uh, of course, the bubble burst. And Everybody who invested in expensive tulips lost a pig, while everybody who uh, bought in early worked out fine. So that is my uh, my uh, summation of cryptocurrency, I guess. Uh, but it's not, you know, I'm not a lawyer or an investment <laughs> advisor, so that is not investment advice either. Anyway, that is your show for today. That's the Saiku. And next week's guest is going to be... Oh, wait, let me do the prompt first. 
Next week's prompt is going to be, um, let's write a poem about one or each of the 12 Jungian archetypes. The first archetype is the artist. So let's write a poem about one or each of the 12 Jungian archetypes. If you try each, if you try to do all 12, like I suggest maybe like a haiku sequence or something, or maybe cram all 12 into one, one poem somehow. Um, so that is your prompt. Write about one or each of the 12 Jungian archetypes. I'm sure there's links all over the place. You can look up what they are. I actually don't know. But it'll be fun to learn about. So that's what I'm going to be doing and then writing a poem. And now, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Janice N. Harrington. Um, oops, that is a, a typo there. It should say Sunday. It's the regular time, Sunday, April 24th. Janice Harrington is, of course, the poet we interviewed for the current spring issue of Rattle. She was a librarian for a long time, has all that experience, and then went into spoken word storytelling, then went into children's books, and then and into poetry as well. Her most recent book is Primitive, but she's got several really great books um, and a really interesting person, a lot to talk about with Janice. So it's one of those things where you've read the interview with her if you're a subscriber. Um, if you have any follow-up questions to the interview, write them down and have them prepared for next week. And that's me Sunday, don't look at the screen, Sunday, April 24th, the regular time, um, 9 uh, a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern time, that's Sunday, April 24th, Rattlecast number 141 with Janice and Harrington. Hope to see you there, hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.